0: lines live from
1: the divided states of america sitting atop the transmission tower of truth taking down hypocrisy one lie at a time right now flying solo in your lady's corner my trolls call me moscow mary but i'm your pierogi princess journalist extraordinaire farron Franzak, which means you're listening to fault lines with thomas and fronzak Great to see everybody this Monday morning. I hope you all had a wonderful, glorious, fantastic weekend for you. Uh, Weekend. Um, We're going to get into some headlines really quick, and then we'll talk about some other events that have happened over the weekend that I think, for those of you that didn't see, the five fingers say to Chris Rock's face, slap... We're gonna talk about that a little bit too. Um, Some funny entertainment news. But um, if you watch the Academy Awards, they said that President Zelensky was actually gonna make an appearance, but to my knowledge, it did not happen. Did not happen. But Sean Penn was out there saying, if he doesn't get in the Academy Awards, I'm gonna forfeit my Academy Awards. Please do it. We're all kind of sick of you, dude. Anyway, getting into your headlines this morning, In your national news, President Joe Biden said that Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin, cannot remain in power in Poland Saturday. Remarks a White House official said later were meant to prepare the world's democracies for extended conflict over Ukraine, not back regime change in Russia. Biden's comments on Saturday, including a statement earlier in the day calling Putin a butcher were sharp escalation of the U.S. approach to Moscow over its invasion of Ukraine. The speech came after three days of meetings in Europe with the G7 European Council and NATO allies. President Biden's job approval rating has plummeted to the lowest of his White House tenure and seven in 10 Americans lack confidence in the commander-in-chief's ability to handle the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a survey released Sunday found. The number of Americans who approve of Biden's actions since he took the helm of the country in January 2021 has fallen to 40 percent, the lowest of his presidency, and a dramatic 13 percentage drop point from April 2021, the new NBC poll shows. The poll was conducted between March 18th and 22nd before Biden left for his trip to Europe. We can only wonder where Vice President Kamala Harris's approval ratings lie, (laughs) don't we? Well, to close the half of America, or close, excuse me, close to half of Americans say that they are very concerned that Russia would directly target the U.S. with nuclear weapons, and an additional three in 10 are somewhat concerned, according to a new poll from the Associated Press. The poll was conducted before North Korea test-fired its biggest intercontinental ballistic missile Friday, but also shows 51% of Americans saying they are very concerned about the threat of the U.S. posed by North Korea's nuclear program. I don't know if y'all saw uh, that little video that Kim Jong-un put out. Um, I was kind of annoyed because I feel like they should have used the Fly fly Into the Danger Zone music for that one, Um, but it's very Top Gun-esque of them counting down to the missile firing and Kim Jong-un is in a leather bomber jacket. It is really, folks, one for the books if you haven't seen it. In your international news, Ukraine could declare neutrality and offer security guarantees to Russia to secure peace, quote, without delay, President Volodymyr Zelensky said, ahead of another planned round of talks, though he said only a face-to-face meeting with Russia's leader could end the war. In an interview with independent Russian media outlets, Zelensky stressed that Ukraine's priority is ensuring its sovereignty and its territorial integrity, preventing Russia from carving up the country, something Ukraine and the West say could now be Moscow's goal. Your holidays for today are Respect Your Cat Day, Surf's Emancipation Day, and weed appreciation day and it says by daddy check parentheses not that kind of weed those are your headlines for monday march 28th 2022 all right folks 87 of you guys watching right now in the chat thank you so much for waking up with us this morning rumble.com slash fault lines share it with your friends everybody you know because this show is growing Ooh, 99 already the show is growing, folks, and we can't thank you enough for being on this journey with us. We think it's gonna start making even more and more waves. Um, but yeah, so we're gonna be talking the latest in uh, Ukraine right now, the latest um of what's going on the ground coming up at seven thirty. Um eight thirty, we're gonna be talking um with Camila um Escalante about Venezuela. Venezuela is actually joining the um is joining Russia. Um, as far as and it's it's being called a, quote, chilling new alliance, even though it's already kind of been there. Um, but talking about an agreement as far as oil and their currency and all that. So the United States is really, um, you know, taking all of its enemies and forcing them to or not forcing, but really pushing them into the arms of each other, which is pretty something the United States tends to do often now in in these times. And then at 9.15, we're going to be talking about Poland's trip. Uh, Very, very interesting set of uh, cases. Um, Estonia and Germany have just increased their defense budget by a lot of money. Now, when I was the host of the news on RT America, we did a lot of deep dive investigations into how much each country, how much each NATO country spends on their defense. Hands over, hand over foot, the United States spends the most. Obviously, we spend more than China and Russia combined on our own defense. And basically, the United States is supplying NATO with all the money, all the guns, all the ammo, all the everything, all the soldiers, everything. Um, but German, Germany and Estonia now, little Estonia, they now are upping their defense budget. Estonia is saying that, you know, they're on um, the border, with with Russia and that's one of the reasons why Germany's saying that for some reason they want to up their game as well um but I do kind of want to get into this just to get it out of the way because everybody is talking about it okay um I want to talk about Will Smith and Chris Rock for a second just to like start the morning off you know since we're talking let's just do some entertainment news for a second because t- let's get away from war for it for just one second um Oh, Morning Gang. Yeah, Farin was brilliant on the moats with Galloway again. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad you guys watched. George and I are very, very good friends. And yeah, he likes to bring me on when he likes to bring some um, comedy to his show as a former semi-comedian. But yeah, so what we have here is last night you had Chris Rock goes out there. Now, actually, no, let me back up. Let me, let me, for those of you who are kind of like, how did this all come together? In 2016, Jada Pinkett Smith, who was married to Will Smith, boycotted the Oscars. That sounds like, if you think 2016, it feels like eons ago, but it was 2016 she boycotted the Oscars. And she said that she was boycotting the Oscars because it was, if you remember, the hashtag Oscar so white. Again, I believe Trump had just gotten into office. So there was a lot of boycotts and protests going on. And Chris Rock was one of the uh, award presenters. And he said, you know, um, her boycotting the Oscars is like me boycotting Rihanna's panties. And everyone was like, what? And he goes, yeah, neither of us were invited. Because I guess she wasn't even up for an Oscar anyway. And if you're not up for an Oscar, you don't really technically go, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a Hollywood actress, so I don't know. But, so that's kind of when the beef, I think, started when he did that. Then you have a couple years ago, I don't know if you guys ever saw this, Jada Pinkett has this show on Facebook called The Red Table, where she likes to hit hard-hitting news or hard-hitting stories. Some of them I've seen, she does a pretty good job. Like she interviewed the... I can't remember her name, but she plays Meredith Gray on Grey's Anatomy, and she talked to her about how she's married to a black man and how they have biracial children and, you know, bringing light to that subject. So she's had some good topics, but for the most part, it's kind of just been entertainment-esque news. Um, And on one of her shows on this red table, she and Will Smith talked about their open relationship And how basically she was cheating on him with a guy. And that's when all of the memes came out about, you know, I was in this entanglement. And Will Smith is like, no, it was a relationship. And she kept calling it an entanglement. To which everyone started clowning on Will Smith saying like, bro, are you really going to take that from your wife? Like, really? And then to which people found out that they were in this open relationship. So you have Will Smith plays an excellent performance in, um, in King Richard, where he plays the father of. It's a story of Serena and Venus Williams and their father, and at the awards shows as of late. Kind of, I mean, comedians usually host these things. And if you remember like Ricky Gervais where he called all of them out for being like out of touch and being, you know, um, basically the problem and how they had zero idea what they were talking about. Ricky Gervais was like one of my favorite people to host because he just cold rag in the face for a lot of these Hollywood elites. And um, so you even had, um, but anyway, so Will Smith is kind of, and Jada Pinkett Smith have been kind of the brunt of the jokes lately because Will Smith is up for best actor. Uh, You had Rebel Wilson making fun of him as far as, you know, him sitting by and watching him date other, watching his wife date other men and stuff like that. So last night, okay, apparently two years ago, Jada Pinkett came out and said that she has alopecia, she was diagnosed with alopecia. So she was going bald. To which then Chris Rock comes out on the stage and says a joke which Will Smith first started laughing at, and then all of a sudden entered the stage. Let's go ahead and play the clip so that we can catch you all up to speed, and then I promise we'll talk about the real news. Let's go ahead and play it, Uncle Andre. Jada, I
2: love you. GI Jane 2, can't wait to
1: see it, all right?
3: I'm out here. Uh oh, Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smack the <laughs> out of it. Keep the- my wife's name out your mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a GI Jane jump. Keep my
4: wife's name out your
1: mouth. I'm going to. Okay. So, <laughs> little rough skis um he went on to give an award i think it was wiz khalifa won the award after but so there's been a lot of you know because we have to keep social issues in the forefront to keep us all distracted um but so you have a lot of people saying that this was chivalrous look at how he stood up for his wife and then you have other people being like bro what are you going what are you going through like what is going on um one of the people that i think um said it best um, was Stephen A. Smith, who, if you don't watch ESPN, he's one of the big broadcasters on there, happens to be black. Um, he, he, I think, kind of put it best. So let's um, roll what Stephen A. Smith said, Uncle Andre. Go ahead.
5: What did tonight was straight <laughs> props and congratulations to him for winning the Oscar, because damn it, he deserved it. And I love the brother and I'm proud of him. But boy, was that a shameful act for him to commit tonight to go up on stage and slap Chris Rock like that. He's lucky he didn't get his ass kicked, particularly after the event was over. If not by Chris Rock to the fellas he had there with him. I mean, damn, Denzel and Bradley Cooper and Tyler Perry having to calm you down, your publicist having to run out and and calm you down. I mean, damn. Come on, bro. Come on, man. There's no excuse for it, ladies and gentlemen. Don't even try to justify it, okay? Chris Rock said it years ago. Every time black folks doing something, you know who messes it up. I never dreamed of my wildest dreams. I'd be saying that about Will Smith. A black man, Will Packer, did a phenomenal job producing the Oscars. And you do this to stain yourself, to stain
3: the Academy Awards?
1: Yeah, so that was Stephen A. Smith. Um, And again, a lot of people are calling this, you know, chivalrous, saying how, again, he's standing up for his wife. Let's see what some of you guys are saying in the chat. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of stuff. um, Showbiz kids making movies themselves, you know, they don't give... Yeah, they don't give a damn about anybody else. Exactly, Jerry. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of what happened at the Oscars last night. In case you missed it, everyone's going to be talking about it today at nauseam instead of talking about the real things going on. For example, like Armenia urging Russia to make their troops leave um, and then them taking advantage of the situation. We're going to be talking about that. Um, but yeah, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting time, isn't it, folks? It's a very, very interesting time. So what I'm going to do here um, is after the break, we will take some calls, 202-521-1320. If you're up and awake and if you have any reaction to Will Smith, 202-521-1320. And we will be right back after this short break. You're listening to Fault Lines. Be right back.
0: Fault Lines. Lines. And welcome back to Fault
1: Lines. Again, we're taking some calls. 202-521-1320. If you're up this early, if you are, I am so proud of you. <laughs> 521-1320. Or excuse me. 202-521-1320. Love to take your calls to see if um, anybody has any anything they want to uh, talk about this morning. Um, but yeah, so... 237 in the chat right now. Thank you so much, all of you for listening. Uh, Again, rumble.com slash fault lines, rumble.com slash fault lines. No Jamal is right now. So we're kind of flying solo here. Um, But over the weekend, um, I wanted to let you guys know that um, I talked to Igor. uh, Oh gosh, I'm going to butcher his name. Laponte. Lopatinuk, thank you. Um, Thank you, Uncle Andre. Uh, Igor Lopatinuk, who is the director of Ukraine on Fire, Revealing Ukraine, and their third installment... Of um, Ukraine, 30 Years of Independence came out uh, last week, and I had a premiere on my YouTube channel. Um, So I have all three installments with his permission, which is amazing. It's cool, like, when you have, like, friends that are like, yeah, I made a movie. Um, (laughs) And you're like, oh, can I play it on my YouTube? And they're like, yeah. Um, But I have it dubbed as Europe on fire, folks. Um, But there's a whole playlist, and it's part one, two, and three of, you know, Ukraine on fire, but it's dubbed Europe on fire, and then revealing Europe so it doesn't get flagged. Um, but you can if you haven't seen the third installment, wow. Um, <laughs> wow, folks. Um it goes through a lot more in-depth. Um and it actually the um reporter on it is um Simona Papadopoulos, who is the wife of George Papadopoulos, who I went to junior high with. Um, we've actually recently connected, so I'm gonna try to get George on the program to talk about a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, him and I actually went to junior high together, believe it or not. So I will never forget the call from my mother when I and I had been working local news at this point, and all this stuff starts coming out about, you know, and I keep hearing Papadopoulos, and I'm like, okay, I I know somebody named Papadopoulos, but it's probably, you know, just a common Greek name. I get a call from my mother and she's like, Farron, it's George. And I'm like, George what? And she goes, Papadopoulos. It's the one that we know. And I was like, well, this is weird. Uh, So yeah, when your friends start making headlines in the news, uh, it's just, it's mind boggling. I'm not going to lie. So, and then like, for example, when I was in South Bend covering Pete Buttigieg and then covering uh, Beto O'Rourke in El Paso, and then they both run for president. It's weird when your friends start running for president. Super awkward and weird because you kind of know them at the same time and you're like, I've seen you out. I know what you're like. But- Let's uh, let's get to Brave and ATL. Brave, I, I, I bet you you have something to say about Will Smith, don't you? How are you this morning?
5: Uh, good morning, friend. How you doing this morning?
1: Good, good. How are you?
5: Doing pretty good. Um, just making my rounds in the morning. <laughs> but I, great um,
1: to hear your voice, then. Thank you very
5: much. I, I did not know about the uh, Will Smith thing until I heard it on the radio this morning, and then of course he's talking about it. But uh, Steve, Stephen A. Smith actually. Is who I want to talk about. He should sit down. He should sit all the way.
1: Oh, okay. Why is that? Yeah,
5: because he's he's always trying to he's always trying to catch some lime real quick. I I, I don't know. He, he's full of crap. So there, there's a little known uh, there's a little known unwritten rule called the uh, black man's burden, right? And, and technically, all all married men or or uh, boyfriends ha- have this burden, but especially the uh, black man's burden. Chi uh, and Peele, this is, I say this, this tongue in cheek, but but it's still a thing. Chi and Peel made a um, made a, uh, a uh, skit about it. I think Chappelle's made a skit about it. You know, can, you can go all the way back to Denzel Washington in the movie where his son had had the uh, had to have a surgery. They had to sell everything. Um, so the, the deal is that uh you might be happy go lucky right but your wife or your girlfriend is a or wrong that the, the classic the classic term is do something right so now this man feels like he's obligated by this woman uh and and to be fair, whether black white Asian, or whatever right you have to do something and 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 your reaction may not be the best reaction, but you know the pressure is there, and you have to do it or or you will feel the uh rage of the wife. And later on, right? And, and again, I'm saying this jokingly, but it's very real. Like uh, I don't know if you remember the movie. Um, what was it? Um, uh, I think it's called Traffic, where uh, the guy from Empire, he, he, not 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 Juicy Smulett, but oh
1: yeah, um, Terry. Um, oh gosh, I know who you're talking about though.
5: Yeah, yeah.
1: Terrence he, Howard, right? Terrence Howard.
5: Yeah, yeah. Terrence Howard. They got pulled over by cops. He cops guns on him, and it was um, and it was. Uh, Wrongfully frisking his wife. Let's just say that, and she was like, "You should have did something. You did. You should. You could do something, right? That's that's the that's the term." Me, my wife laugh about it all the time. But right? here,
1: here's my only thing, brave. Okay, that's that's an officer frisking, and and, and again, if you've seen traffic, yeah, he fr- when I say frisk, he feels her up. This was a joke, okay? It was a joke, and for for me personally. I think there's a lot of other stuff going on with Will Smith. Again, you had like Rebel Wilson a couple of weeks back making fun of him about their open relationship. And let me be honest, I think the only part of that open relationship is Jada Pinkett Smith. I don't think Will Smith is. but that And that's where I, I think everyone was like, whoa, like something's going on here. But one of the things that was interesting is everyone was saying if he was a white guy, they would have taken him out in handcuffs. They would have found all of these articles on how racist he was and his career would have been over. Whereas Will Smith went up after and he won the Academy award for best actor and went up and was spouting all these tears. I got to protect people and I got to protect and love people. And that it was like, nothing happened. I mean, I don't know your thoughts.
5: So, yeah. So two things, right? Again, that's Will Smith, right? So like if, if, I get the whole, if it was a white guy, if anybody, like if, if, if Brave, uh, also known by my government name, Mickey Salton was to walk up on stage and slap Chris Rock, I I would probably have been in in handcuffs before I got to the stage, right? That's that's anybody, black, white, anything, right? But that's Smith, right? So it it could have been Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise would have picked some blowback, but he went and left in handcuffs, right? But second thing, and more important, um, Sometimes in life we get these ignorant moments, right? And, and everything can, I mean, you know, we are Monday quarterbacking and all of this stuff and you know, everybody wants to be all rational and say, you know, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, and you should choose the wire, the, the higher the higher uh, route and all that. That's bull crap. I mean, <laughs> real world.
1: All right, so so let's talk about taking the high road, okay? So now now that we've got all of this Will Smith and all this other crap out of the way, let's talk about Joe Biden for a second. So over the weekend, you had President Biden In Poland, saying the quiet part out loud at the end of his, excuse me, at the end of his speech, where it was not scripted in the speech, he said, and I'm trying to paraphrase here, but he said, and God forbid, this man cannot remain in power. He said, this man cannot remain in power, meaning President Vladimir Putin. Then he lands back in the United States and there's a reporter out there saying, hey, hey, do you want regime change in Russia? Are you calling for your regime change in Russia? And he says, no. And then you have the White House saying, see, that's not really what he meant. What he meant is that he doesn't like President Putin. Brave, how are you feeling about your your our, our president right now? And do you think he meant it?
5: I don't think he knows what he means half the time. He can't. I think most times he can't find his way out of his own pants. So (laughs) I don't really. um, My my feelings haven't changed about him at all. Like he he really shouldn't be there. (laughs) He really shouldn't be there. But um, I I will say I've listened to a a number of uh, of things and and read a number of things that um, uh, cause me to believe that, that lead me to believe that um, there is. some some imbalance between oh yeah some some imbalance between I guess uh, let's just say uh, the military complex and intelligence, and intelligence uh, the, our intelligence agencies and, and I think they're not on the same uh, they're not on the same page and I think that's why we keep seeing all these well I, I think Biden's not never on the same page as Biden so that that's that's a given but I don't think they're on the same page and I don't think they they quite know what they want to do I, I think I'm pretty sure you you've uh, seen enough reports and heard enough uh, coverage. Um, to have the same uh, outlook that it seems like our military personnel, uh, our military leadership is uh, like, no, we don't want any, we don't want any conflict. We don't want to walk on stage with Russia in that way. Whereas um, I I, I guess our intelligence, they've been pushing us for a long time. We obviously know that. I, I don't know. To be quite honest, I just don't know what these people are doing. I, I, the only time that I I can really just uh, make make any stuff make sense is when I'm looking at, and I hate to beat this drum, but when I'm looking at um, what's been put out in the Great Reset and, and the Great Narrative, there, there's a I, well. I actually, on calling about today uh, before this morning, there is a um, article that that came out last week that goes into um, that, that that cites PR Weekly that that goes into this 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 amazing. PR campaign that um, that that, that uh, Ukraine has tapped uh, the, the the CIA and 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 NGOs and I think the number they said it was 150 uh, different intelligence agencies, uh, uh, the NGOs, our uh, CIA, and, and on and on and on and on to control the narrative. And to me, that's really scary because there's so much coming out of Ukraine. I don't know what these people are doing. And I, I, there was a time where I could say, "Ah, there's no, there's no way we're going to go to war with with them. There's no, there's no way we could be that stupid."
1: Well, especially you have Joe Biden saying to our troops, "Yeah, when you guys see when you get to Kiev, and it's like, sir, yeah, so yeah, brave and ATL." Thank you so much for waking up with me this morning. I appreciate you. Um, We're going to head over to Mark in Florida really quick before the break. Mark, what's going on? What's on your mind?
6: How are you doing, guys? Uh, You know, I'm glad to see Fault Lines is back. And I I really... um,
1: We're back, baby. We didn't go anywhere. (laughs) Just to rumble.
6: (laughs) Probably. Your addition to the show really made me interested again. Oh, thank you. As far as uh, Biden goes, uh, the man is dangerous. He's not, he's not all there in the first place. He was never any good. He's a corrupt SLB. Uh, there's no question about that. As far as Putin, as far as Vladimir Putin goes, um, we're talking about one of the, probably, maybe the smartest uh, statesman and leader in the world today. Um, and um, I got to give, what I, whatever else you say about Vladimir Putin, you got to give him credit for his strength. Did you see those, those um, films about the torture of Russian prisoners?
1: Yes. And actually, um, tomorrow at 9.15 a.m., we're going to be interviewing George Eliason. I have him on my Twitter. He is an American journalist covering Donbass. He lives there covering it. And he was actually one of the first people to send out those videos. He's been covering um, the prisoner exchanges happening. And we're going to be talking to him at 9.15. And... I cannot wait for that interview because he's going to be dropping some major truth bombs in that. But, yes, as to your point, I did see that video.
6: I mean, it made me sick. It really made me sick to see that. I mean, I saw it on InfoWars, and um, he kept on playing it over and over again. I which I, I, was eating dinner at the time, too, so, and it you know, turned my stomach. Uh, they can not you got. You got to say this. The fact that the Russians—and I'm sure they've got a heck of a lot more— Ukrainian prisoners, the Ukrainians have Russians, that they don't start doing the same thing to the Ukrainian prisoners, you've got to give them credit, okay? And it's probably because Putin himself and so much of Russia are now Christians, Greek, you know, Eastern Orthodox Christians. While these Nazis, these Nazis, I don't know if they have any kind of religion, okay? Uh, I know Hitler was an occultist, and they, if I had to guess, they're probably some kind of occultist themselves. Maybe they believe in some kind of Norse god. I don't know. But whatever it is, these people are evil, and he's and they got to be crushed. They got to be crushed quickly because they are a you know they are in a they are infecting on the entire world. I mean, these people they make they make the uh, Islamists you know like ISIS. They make ISIS almost look like pacifists. I mean, I, it's unbelievable and do that right, on, and it's so stupid too doing it right on. Uh, on film on top of it. But I don't know if that was stupid about it. I think they just wanted to show, here, this is who we are. I know who you are, you Nazis, okay? My uncle fought his way through North Africa and um, and um, Italy, World War II, okay? I know exactly who you are, okay? My family fled to Nazis. Well,
1: and they always say, there's three questions you should never ask. You should never ask A woman, what her age is. A man, how much money he makes. And you should never ask a Ukrainian what his grandfather was doing from 1919 to 1945. One of the funniest memes I've seen so far as late. But um, Mark in Florida, thank you so much. We're going to end it here for right now. Dave, I see you in South Carolina. Call us back after the eight o'clock hour because we're going to be heading to our guest a little bit after the break. Or actually, no, David, stay there. We're going to take a quick short break and we'll catch you right after the uh, the break, David, in South Carolina. You're listening to Fault Lines right now with just your pierogi princess we'll be right back in two
0: fault lines fault lines
1: Welcome back to Radio Sputnik. You're listening to Fault Lines. My name is Farron Franzak. We're flying solo today, so it's just going to be your pierogi princess. But we're going to be taking calls all morning because it's one of those days where it's not technically a slow news day, but, you know, we're flying solo. And also, I know a lot of you guys have been, because the show is growing, um, 304 in the chat right now at 730. Um, That, I think, is the most I've seen so far this hour. So 310. We are still growing. So um, make sure that uh, you like. Give it a rumble. Share it to all your friends. Rumble.com slash fault lines. Again, rumble.com slash fault lines. And today is going to kind of be that day. If you've been waiting to get a call in, we are going to be doing it at the top of every hour after headlines. We'll be taking your calls. You can talk to us about anything. Just make sure you do not swear. No potty mouths or you will get cut real quick. Um. Anyway, let's go back to one of my favorites here. Let's talk to Dave in South Carolina. Dave, good morning. What's on your mind there, buddy? Morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? It's a cold morning. I'm walking my dog. It's freezing. Oh, glad she's doing better, though. I feel like I've been on this journey with your dog with you. <laughs>
7: oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the support. Um, my favorite my favorite thing that I saw online recently, it was never ask a woman or salary or uh, woman or age man a salary and don't ask a Ukrainian soldier what that symbol is.
1: Oh, that's another good one. <laughs> I'll have to add that to my new favorite memes. Yeah, there's there's always some
7: type of Nazi symbolism that,
1: and I mean, it's crazy,
7: you know, like I, I don't think that every single one of the soldiers is a Nazi, but every single picture it seems like the Western media covers, if you zoom in, there's a symbol. So-
1: it's one of those it's like it's not every Ukrainian soldier is a Nazi, but every Nazi is a Ukrainian right now. You know, it's kind of one of those things.
7: Yeah, it's it's just it's it's um very frightening to see the way people are lining up. But uh the I wanted to call about uh Joe Biden and you know, he and Trump have a similarity. Okay. I like how I liked how Trump would say the quiet part out loud. Right? That he didn't he didn't care, Biden's saying the quiet part out loud because he
1: can't. <laughs> <laughs> I you know what I I actually agree. You know I'll even I'll even further you with that, David, is that Trump would say the quiet part out loud, and then when asked about it, he would double down and almost like, "Yep, that's exactly what I said," and I'll say it one more time. Whereas Biden says it, and I don't think he remembers saying it, like you had, like what he said, where he said, "God, you know, God forbid he remains in power," and then the the reporter is asking him, "Do you do you mean you want a regime change?" And he's like, "No," like he's like your old crotchety grandpa, you know, just trying to go get the morning newspaper.
7: (laughs) Yeah, it's. I mean, I I can't believe it. And then you think about who's next in the presidential line of succession. Then you have laughing about refugees. Don't come tell
1: him don't come kamala <laughs> do not come Gosh. <laughs> i think one of the best memes too was the the do not come do not come and then it's trump i'm going to come <laughs> <laughs> oh boy da- so david in south carolina over the weekend though it was one of probably one of the top headlines that you saw that you just had to roll your eyes at We lost David. It's totally fine. But we're going to we're working on getting Scott Ritter on the line here because Scott, I know, has a ton of stuff to talk about as far as the latest. But I want to look at Armenia right now. Um, Armenia, there's a headline coming out of Reuters here. Armenia urges Russia to make Azeri troops leave and Karabakh flare up. Okay. Oh, we have Scott. Okay, so we're going to welcome to the stage here. Um, we have Scott Ritter. Hang on one second. Let me head over to my script to make. Scott Ritter is a former UN weapons inspector and a weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. According to the New York Times, he became the loudest and most credible skeptic of the Bush administration's contention that Saddam Hussein was hiding weapons of mass destruction. You can follow Scott Ritter on Twitter at RealScottRitter. Scott Ritter. Scott, Loved your tweets over the weekend. I loved you putting out all of your Russian beer. How are we doing this Monday morning?
8: I'm doing great, thanks. Yourself?
1: I'm doing very well, sir. Thank you. Um so let's talk about the Ukraine latest. And and the other thing that the big headline over the weekend was what's happening with Armenia and how they're kind of jumping in on this, you know, to kind of kind of get their hat, ha- hand in the in the whole parade here. What do you make of, of all of the headlines coming out of Ukraine this weekend?
8: Well, I mean, the, the dominant headline, of course, was uh, Biden's you know alleged gaffe, where he uh, all but called for regime change in in Russia. Um, you know, it uh, he his European trip, uh, his trip to NATO, his trip to the EU, his trip to Poland, was all a carefully scripted um, you know event designed to manufacture the notion of nato unity in the face of russian aggression um anybody who studies europe nato and uh in particular as those two entities uh relate to what's going on in ukraine know that there is no nato unity um you know, not every NATO member is on board with sanctions. Even those who have agreed to sanctions are wavering. Um, you know, in 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 the face of potential, you know, Russian counter uh, economic sanctions. Um, the there is a lack of unity in terms of how to support Ukraine or whether or not Ukraine is even worth supporting. Um, so. You know, the, we, we know that Biden was out promulgating fiction, um, which is OK. That's what that's what diplomats do. Uh, but his speech, which was supposed his speech in Poland, uh, which was supposed to be his, you know, Reagan in Berlin moment, his, his JFK moment, um, turned out to be his Biden moment because Biden isn't Reagan. Biden isn't JFK. Biden is Biden. Uh, he puts his foot in his mouth, and his closing remarks, um, I think, shed light on you know, an uncomfortable reality of Washington, D.C., namely that regime change in Russia is the policy of the United States. It's not the stated policy of the United States, but anybody who deconstructs American-Russian policy um, since 2009, uh, when Obama came in, advised by Michael McFaul, um, knows that getting Putin out of office is a primary policy objective of the United States. And, and Biden gave voice to this in his final ad-libbed sentence in his, uh, in his speech. Um, and this is a, we, we have to view this in the context of, At the same time this is happening, uh, Biden is walking back his campaign pledge to redo American nuclear posture, in particular to get away, do away with the notion of of a first strike. Um, He's now saying, no, well, maybe there's conditions under which we might consider a first strike. And when you take a look at the reexamination of that in the context of You know, the U.S. Russian loggerheads over Ukraine, uh, you might begin to understand what one of those conditions might be, especially when you couple this with the looming deployment of the Dark Eagle hypersonic missile into Germany later this year, a missile that will give the United States the ability to reach out and touch Russian leadership in Moscow within five minutes of launch. So now, if you're a Russian sitting there going, Well, let's see. We got Biden saying nuclear first strike's good. We got Biden saying he wants Putin gone. And we got Biden putting hypersonic missiles into Germany that can accomplish the Putin being gone thing in five minutes. Are you worried? And I think that uh, the answer is yes. Uh, Joe Biden, far from creating the conditions of NATO unity, have created the conditions of global annihilation in his uh, speech in I don't think there's too many people in Europe or anywhere in the world that are happy with what the American president did this weekend.
1: No, and, and you actually look at, Scott, there was a map that, that came up over the weekend and it showed all of the countries that have sanctioned Russia. And it was basically the United States and Canada and then pretty much all of Europe except Bosnia. And you see how it very much is the West versus everybody else in this But then, again, over the weekend, you have Armenia that's trying to, like, get their hat in the ring and and try this anti-Russia thing now. Um, Armenia said Monday that expected Russia to take action to make Azerbaijan withdraw troops from an area um, policed by Russian peacekeepers where tensions are rising in a bitter territorial row. Why do you think Armenia now, all of a sudden, is trying to kind of get in on the action, do you think?
8: Well, actually, I think the 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 party at fault here is Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. Sent troops in. It's it's not Armenia trying to get in the action. It's the Russian peacekeepers calling Azerbaijan out, and Armenia saying, "Yeah, more of that, please."
1: Oh, okay, okay. So, so then, but, but but why now, though? I mean, is it is it just to kind of um, if if it's with Azerbaijan? I mean, because again, I'm not super well versed in this area, so. And, and I know I'm sure maybe many of our our listeners might not be kind of it might have been a while since they've heard Azerbaijan and this whole debacle going on, but kind of walk us through it and and why now do you think that they're calling for this?
8: Well, Azerbaijan has first of all they're feeling their oats because they won a very decisive victory over Armenia, uh, an Armenia that ostensibly backed by Russia in in the last war. Although um, anybody who studies that conflict knows that. Russia took a step back as a way of giving Armenia its comeuppance for being a little too cocky. Um, I mean, Putin showed up in their capital, and he wasn't greeted by the prime minister. I mean, it was Armenia was just doing a whole bunch of insulting things to Russia, and so when Azerbaijan uh, launched its offensive last year to uh, recapture territories that had been controlled control by uh, Armenia for for years, uh, Russia pretty much did nothing and uh, let. Armenia rot. Now Russia's stepped back in and they're trying to convince Armenia to be, you know, a good, compliant state. Um, and, and, and Azerbaijan um, is a close ally with Turkey. I mean, these uh, Turkish drones that, um, you know, came to prominence in the Ukraine conflict uh, for, you know, uh, allegedly taking out, you know, numerous uh, Russian tanks and, and targets uh, were first tested in a meaningful way during the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict. Um, and Turkey, you know, sided openly with uh, Armenia uh, deploying its air force, I mean, to Azerbaijan deploying its air force, doing joint exercises, and it's even now uh, flexing its muscles. So I think this, is, this could be more about Turkey encouraging Azerbaijan to take advantage of a perceived Russian distraction in Ukraine to um, further its objectives, um, in regards to Armenia. Uh, and I think that's what's happening right now. And, uh, the question is, is Russia too distracted in, um, uh, Ukraine to, uh, back up its, its peacekeeping mission in, uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh and in, in, in Armenia and Azerbaijan, um, you know, and, and, and that's a fair question, uh, because, uh, to enforce, you have to be willing to take action, and to take action means you have to be take, uh, take action against a a capable Azerbaijani military backed up by uh, you know Turkish technology and Turkish um, military assistance. Um, it has you know the ability to become a uh, regional conflict very quick. Uh, another tangent to this is Iran has come out and said that in any future Azerbaijan. Uh, Armenian conflict, Iran will take the side of Armenia. So this could actually become an even bigger uh, conflict. So it's a, it's more than just a sideshow. This has the the, the the potential of erupting into a uh, major regional conflict.
1: You know, I want to pivot now and talk a little bit about China and India um, because these two countries, um, well, and even, even to with, with the United States, we have You know, Biden goes over first to Brussels, then to Poland. And he's talking about, you know, basically in Brussels where he slaps all the more sanctions on Russia, which literally it's like throwing darts at a tank at this point, because the only people that are getting hurt by it are us. He says that he, you know, he says that there is going to be a global food shortage. You have India who, you know, as you know, the one of the 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 number one biggest democracy in the world who abstained from the vote against Russia, uh, along with China. But you have India now snapping up cheap Russian oil. China, they're looking, China could be next snapping up that cheap Russian oil. But you also have the United States. You know, Biden last week had, or excuse me, uh, not last Friday, but the Friday before, had a two-hour phone call with President Xi Jinping. And, you know, basically they say was him warning, hey, you better play ball or, you know, we're going to slap sanctions on you. Um, this whole idea of of slapping sanctions when we're, we're the only ones getting hit. You saw sanctions yourself when you were over in Iraq, you know, as we saw with Madeleine Albright with 500,000 Iraqi kids dying at her hands, basically. And, you know, with China now, what do you predict is going to start happening more and more, especially with the ruble now, they thought that would tank the ruble. It's not. They thought it would tank the Russian economy. It's not. They thought it would help bring Putin's approval rating lower. It hasn't. It's over 80%. So, I mean, first of all, what gives with the United States? And next, if we were to sanction China more, I mean, are we that are we that much of, of idiots right now where you think we actually would do it?
8: <laughs> well, to answer your last question first, yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Literally, that's the only option we have, uh, and it's—I mean—it's not an option. Sanctions, in—you know—first of all, sanctions are the option of the impotent, um, and you know, the physically impotent. Sanctions, especially the way the United States, uh, you know, employs them, are merely an extension of this so-called rules-based world order that we have imposed on the world in the aftermath of, the, of World War II uh, that is linked to the dominance of the American dollar in the global economic system. And we have exploited that dominance for our own economic well-being, and we are using it, uh, you know, back when we could back it up with military power and, you know, diplomatic prowess, uh, sanctions had the potential to have um, meaning, but we didn't employ them because we didn't need to. All we needed to do um, was, you know, say, "Hey, we have some economic assistance here. If you want it, you got to play ball." And the world was weak. The world was not focused. Uh, and the world played ball. Uh, today, it's a different world. The world's grown up. Uh, we have nations like Brazil, South Africa, India, China, Russia. I think we call them BRICS. Um, uh, saying we don't believe in a uh, you know in a, in a single polarity that uh, gravitates around the United States anymore. We believe in a multipolar world, and um, this dollar thing is uh, becoming you know everybody said nobody will dump the dollar because it's going to cost you too much. Well, you know what? Russia's dumping it because of, Russia doesn't want to allow the dollar to dictate its policies.
1: And notice how that got zero headline coverage. That should have been a major story across the boards, and it was just kind of like nothing. But yes, keep going.
8: To talk. Nobody wants to talk about it. Right. Ramifications of that are horrible. I mean, that's like, you know, telling everybody that you're you know, you can bench press two hundred and fifty pounds. I just came from the gym. Um, and And
1: we appreciate the last minute call, trust me.
8: <laughs> somebody somebody says, Well, hey, uh here's a bench. <laughs> here's two hundred and fifty pounds, do it you're like, well, maybe I can only do 150. Um, uh-huh. you know, the United States has, has puffed itself up, and suddenly Russia says no. And the United States doesn't want to draw attention to it because, A, Russia saying no is being is so far succeeding for Russia. And, B, if it's succeeding for Russia, you, you don't think China's looking at all this? First of all, the, the freezing of Russia's sovereign wealth fund was the biggest act of lunacy The world has ever seen. Um, You know, Russia had you know its sovereign wealth fund. It was it was it it consisted of hard currency that was deposited in banks around the world that are supposed to guarantee the deposit, and then you know its gold uh, you know in Russian banks. But that gold is linked to you know its its ability to be liquid uh, through these other banks and these other holdings by seizing Russia's foreign currency reserves. Um, The the United States has pretty much told China, <laughs> who has a similar uh, setup, by the way, uh, this is what we can do to you. And China's looking at saying, I don't know if we're happy with that. And everybody said, well, China will never dump its dollar holdings because it'll be too expensive. Well, what's what's more expensive, dumping your dollar holdings for you know uh, half of, of what they're worth or losing them all when the United States depl- decides to sanction you? Um, And the other thing is, if China dumps the dollar and manages that properly, they destroy the American economy. Um, So the United States, thinking that it's flexing with sanctions, is actually setting itself up for massive economic disaster. But the Americans can't see it, because to see it, you have to recognize you're not who you say you are. We are no longer the global economic superpower. We have a lot of power. We have a lot of influence. We have a lot of strength. But most of this comes from our ability to intimidate people with what they think we can do. Russia's showing them that we're all bark, no bite when it comes to this. Sanctions don't work. They didn't work against Iraq. They didn't work against Iran. They're not working against Russia. They will never work against China. All sanctions will do in this day and age is hurt us. It's a double-edged sword. With one edge being dull, that's the edge that we're hacking away at the other guys. The other edge is razor sharp, and it's slicing us to bits. Um, but we can't admit it because the moment we admit that, we give voice to the reality that the world doesn't gravitate around the United States anymore. That the world is a far more nuanced, complex reality. And is, and, and the the moment the rest of the world wakes up to that fact, the United States is going to find itself standing alone in a room awash with dollars that are no longer worth anything.
1: I want to pivot to a lot of the video that's spoken going around about these Russian prisoners being tortured, being shot in the leg, in the groin, um, and when these Ukrainian soldiers watching them bleed out. I mean, horrible atrocities committed um, and it's all been captured on video. Um kind of wanted to get your thoughts because I saw that you were tweeting a lot about this over the weekend. Um, kind of your thoughts and and why you're not going to see this on the mainstream. I mean, I, I watched it all weekend. I always have it on in the background as I'm cleaning or whatever I'm doing. And not once did I ever hear any mums the word on on on, on what's been happening to these Russian soldiers.
8: You know, <laughs> Azov Battalion in Mariupol uh, can can wire explosives to the roof of a uh, of a theater, blow it up, and call it a Russian bomb. Um, and CNN will Russians bomb theater, thousands trapped. You know, none of it's true. Um, but then when these videos show up, CNN you know was compelled to mention them. They said, well, there's there's horrible videos out there, but we haven't verified them yet. We don't know if this is true. Um, you know, and fair point. I I I'm actually on this one. I believe CNN is correct to say we haven't verified it yet. Um I mean, I, I think some of the um some some smart people have looked at the videos and they've geolocated the location. It's in Ukraine territory. It's a location known to be a prisoner uh transfer facility of the Ukrainian armed forces. So there's little doubt that Ukrainians have manufactured this, this videotape. Now, does it purport to show? Why would Ukrainians manufacture a, a video of them violating the laws of war um, for kicks and grins? I mean, it, it doesn't work that way. There's very good reason to believe this video is genuine. And this video reflects a reality of the Ukrainian armed forces that I've been speaking about for some time.
1: I, I remember you, you talking when this all broke out in the very beginning. You saying that these were vile people or vile soldiers. They hate the Russians, which, I mean, to have this kind of hatred, it's, it's a lot
8: to see. Well, well I mean, look, I'm going to be honest. When I was a Marine training to fight the, the Soviets, trust me, you can't go to war. You can't prepare for war. You can't consider um, involving yourself in war unless you hate your enemy. Because we're talking about taking human life. And uh, I can't sit there and say, well, I respect it. Because if I hesitate on the battlefield, they will kill me. All right? My goal is not to die. My goal is to make them die. So I understand hate. I embrace hate. I endorse hate on the battlefield. But it's hate tempered with discipline. As a Marine Corps officer, I would unleash my Marines, if necessary, to slaughter the enemy. But the moment somebody raised their hands and said, I surrender, the law of war comes in. We grab that person. I'm going to roughly interrogate them as I'm allowed to do in the immediate aftermath of, of, of the battle, uh, not abusing them, but making them scared to death so they're going to tell me things, etc. And then I'm going to turn them over to the hand, the, to the, the the other people who are. Going to, and trust me, if I capture a wounded guy, he gets treated right then. If I capture a guy who's thirsty, he gets water. If I capture a hungry guy, he gets food. I mean, that's just the way it goes. And then they turn them over to people who put them in a camp and process them in accordance with the Geneva Convention because that's who we are. That's what we do. The Ukrainians should be that way because we've trained them. But they've been thoroughly, thoroughly infiltrated by these Azov Nazi thugs. And we see this playing out not only with what they're doing to Russian prisoners, but what they're doing to Ukrainian citizens. When the story comes out about Mariupol, about how these Azov Nazis stuffed the basements of apartment buildings with women and children and wouldn't let them leave so that the Russians and could not use artillery and were forced to come in and engage in hand-to-hand combat. The Russians, you know what, didn't use artillery against those buildings, came in, did the hand-to-hand combat, annihilated the Azov people, and rescued those people in the basement. But if you don't think that that is a war crime, there are war crimes taking place in Ukraine today. There are hundreds of war crimes taking place a day in Ukraine, and they're almost all being take, uh, done by the Ukrainian military. This, this, this war, when, it, when the, his, the final history is written on it, the Ukrainians and those in the West who supported them, sustained them, facilitated them, are going to go down to some of the most vile, vile people ever. And I, I, I don't like to extend uh, my disdain for the Ukrainian military to the Ukrainian civilians, but I'll just say this. I could have taken a documentary film crew into Nazi Germany in 1944 and produced a film that made you think the German people were the most wonderful, loving, kind, caring people in the world. I mean, Hitler loved puppies listen to classical music they pet puppies they raise kittens they kiss their children and all this stuff they also will get into a parade put their arm up and say sig Heil." they also uh, helped create the rise of adolf hitler and they also sustained nazi germany throughout its many years of war so do i cry when german cities got bombed and the german uh, civilian population paid the price of the sins of their government no do I want to abuse the German people? No. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that they are innocent victims. Ukrainian people are not innocent victims.
1: And you know what, Scott, we're going to leave it there because we're coming up to a hard break. Scott Ritter, former U.N. Uh, weapons inspector, we cannot thank you enough for taking our call at the last minute. Scott, we'll talk to you soon. Folks, we'll be back. You're listening to Fault Lines. We're back in two.
0: Fault Lines. Live from the
1: divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, shooting down hypocrisy one lie at a time. Right now, flying solo in your lady's corner. My trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I am your pierogi princess, your journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak, which which means you're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik have to run for these quick breaks when it's just you have to go and get more water and all that other stuff. So that was fun. Uh, But we made it back just in time. Let's go over some headlines. And then we're going to talk about a story that made zero dent in the mainstream media this weekend, which truthfully really grinded my gears. Um, But let's read your headlines for today, folks. For your Monday, March 28th, In your national news, President Joe Biden says that Russian President Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. In Poland Saturday, remarks a White House official later said were meant to prepare the world's democracies for extended conflict over Ukraine, not back regime change in Russia. That's
3: a bunch of old...
1: Biden's comments on Saturday, including a statement earlier in the day calling Putin a, quote, butcher were sharp escalation of the U.S. approach to Moscow over its invasion of Ukraine. The speech came after three days of meetings in Europe with the G7 European Council and NATO allies. President Biden's job approval ratings have plummeted to the lowest of his White House tenure, and seven in 10 Americans lack confidence in the commander-in-chief's ability to handle the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a survey released Sunday finds. The number of Americans who approve of Biden's actions since he took the helm of the country in January 2021 has fallen to 40%, the lowest of his presidency and a dramatic 13 percentage point drop from April 2021, the NBC News poll finds. The poll was conducted between March 18th and 22nd before Biden left for his trip to Europe. Close to half of Americans say they are very concerned that Russia would directly target the U.S. with nuclear weapons and an additional 3 in 10 are somewhat concerned, according to the new poll from the AP. The poll was conducted before North Korea test-fired its biggest intercontinental ballistic missile Friday, but also shows that 51% of Americans saying they are very concerned about the threat of the U.S. posed by North Korea's nuclear program. In your international news, Ukraine could declare neutrality and offer security guarantees to Russia to secure peace, quote, without delay, President Volodymyr Zelensky said ahead of another planned round of talks, though he said only a face-to-face meeting with Russia's leader could end the war. In an interview with independent Russian media outlets, Zelensky stressed that Ukraine's priority is ensuring its sovereignty and its territorial integrity, preventing Russia from carving up the country, something Ukraine and the West say could now be Moscow's goal. Armenia said Monday it expected Russia to take action to make Azerbaijan withdraw troops from an area of Nagorno-Karabakh, policed by Russian peacekeepers tensions are rising in a bitter territorial low, or excuse me, territorial row. Azari troops in 2020 drove ethnic Armenian forces out of the swaths of territory they had controlled since the 90s in and around Nagorno-Karabakh before Russia brokered a ceasefire and deployed peacekeepers. Azerbaijan said Sunday that it had not withdrawn its forces and said the area was its sovereign territory. Your holidays today are Respect Your Cat Day, which should be every day, Surf's Emancipation Day, and Weed Appreciation Day. Not the kind of weed you're thinking, though. Those are your headlines for Monday, March 28th, 2022. Hmm. So, folks, here's what kind of grinded my gears over the weekend. Uh, 447 in the chat. Let's make it to 500, baby. Rumble.com slash fault lines. Hit that rumble. It always is smash that like button, but it's smash that rumble or hit that rumble button, whatever the heck you want to call it. But go ahead and share it. Um, Giving you kind of an update. We're going to be talking about Venezuela and kind of their whole role in all of this because Venezuela, man. They're making, they're they're about to drain the money out of some of their enemies, folks. And that's kind of the real karma in all of this. But I want to talk about Hunter Biden. Okay. Now, Biden goes over to Brussels and Poland, and the news breaks Friday night from the Daily Mail. Oh, what does the headline say, Farron? Here's what the headline says, folks exclusive Hunter Biden. Did help secure millions in funding for a U.S. contractor in Ukraine specializing in deadly pathogen research? Laptop emails reveal, raising more questions about the disgraced son of the vice president. So, yeah. I will say a little toot the horn. I'm going to toot my own horn, or excuse me, I don't want to toot my own horn, but beep, beep. Manila and I called this three weeks ago when we were um, sitting in for the backstory. We said, how much do you want to bet that Hunter Biden is tied up with these biolabs? It was the same day that um, Victoria Nuland came out and said, yeah, there's actually biolabs and we're worried about the Russians getting them. Then they were like, okay, Vicky, (laughs) we're going to take you out back and uh, never see you again. Um, But yeah, so here's what, all it all says in this. And mind you, these emails, folks, are damning, like extremely damning. Moscow's claim that Hunter Biden helped finance a U.S. military bioweapons research program in Ukraine is at least partially true, according to these new emails obtained exclusively by DailyMail.com. The commander of the Russian Nuclear Biological and Chemical Protection Forces claimed there was a scheme of interaction between U.S. government agencies and Ukrainian biological objects and pointed to the financing of such activities by structures close to the current U.S. leadership. In particular, the investment fund, Rosemont Seneca, remember that name, which is headed by Hunter Biden. Okay. Remember, Rosemont Seneca. Intelligence experts say the Russian military leaders allegations were a brazen propaganda ploy to justify President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine and so discord here in the US. But emails from Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop show he helped secure millions of dollars of funding for Metabiota, a Department of Defense contractor. Department of Defense, our military, a contractor specializing in research on, hmm, what, are the, what do they specialize in? Pandemic-causing diseases that could be used as bioweapons. Hmm. He also introduced Metabiota to an alleged, allegedly corrupt Ukrainian gas firm, Burisma. For a science project involving high biosecurity level labs in Ukraine. Gee, where have I heard Barisma before? Oh, Hunter Biden was on the board, making eighty grand a month, a million dollars a year, because he had so much, so much knowledge of gas and companies and how they work, right? And although Meadow Biota. Uh, is a uh, excuse me is a medical data company. I can read. Its vice president emailed Hunter in 2014, describing how they could assert Ukraine's cultural and economic independence from Russia—an unusual goal for a biotech firm. So let me wrap this up in a nice little bow for you folks. Okay, so you have Hunter Biden. Who is, part of, who is heading Rosemont Seneca, an investment firm, is also on the board of Burisma and tells them to get in on this little metabiota, get in on metabiota and get in with these Ukraine biolabs. So you have Hunter Biden, you have the folks at Burisma, and you have the Department of Defense, all three in and around these Ukrainian biolabs. But excuse me, folks, before you sit there and call me fake news, let's read on. Let's look at some of these emails. Here's one email from Mary Gutierrez, who is the vice president of science and technology at Metabiota. From 2014, 444, 14 at 614 AM. Hi, Hunter. I hope you enjoyed a smooth flight across the pond and that this finds you and your wife enjoying a wonderful Friday in beautiful Lake Cuomo. Hmm. Must be nice. <coughs> Excuse me. Thanks so much for taking time out of your intense schedule. Okay, if you're in Lake Como, how is your schedule intense? I digress. Thanks so much for taking time out of your intense schedule to meet with Kathy and I on Tuesday. We very much enjoyed our discussion. As promised, I've prepared the attached memo, which provides an overview of Metabiota, our engagement in Ukraine, and how we could potentially leverage our team networks and concepts to assert Ukraine's cultural and economic independence from Russia and continued integration into Western society. The PDF comprises English and Ukrainian versions of the document. Wishing you successful meetings and a great visit. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. You then go and look and see that in the contract summary, the Department of Defense, it says awarding agency, Department of Defense, the recipient, Metabiota Inc., out of San Francisco again who was in with Hunter Biden, Rose Monsetica, and Barisma awarded 18.4 million dollars by the Department of Defense Folks, if this doesn't scream collusion, corruption, what have you? And let's not let's not just think of Hunter Biden, okay? because there's a lot of other people that are in on this. One of them being former, um, former uh, what's his face? Uh, Secretary of State, John Kerry, okay? John Kerry, if you didn't know, his stepson, Chris Hines, was an investment partner with Hunter Biden. When asked about all of this stuff with Burisma, It actually found out. Let me actually pull up the article here. Um, Let's see. Where is it? Uh, John Kerry steps on Hunter Biden. Here we go. Yahoo. Yahoo had a great article on it. Senate probe finds that John Kerry falsely claimed he had no knowledge of Hunter Biden's role in Burisma. I wish I feel like these folks need to go on Maury. Okay. Senator John or former Senator John Kerry, when you said that you didn't know that Hunter Biden was involved with Burisma, we found out that was a lie. Yeah. Hunter Biden, when you said you didn't know it was your laptop, we found out that was a lie. Uh, Hunter Biden or Victoria Newland, when uh, <laughs> you claimed that, actually, no, she actually was the one that didn't lie. I'm sorry. She actually told the truth. But everybody else, Everybody else out there who said that this is Russian propaganda. Folks, I I feel like we need to start calling Russian propaganda truth. Because that's what happens like two weeks after these conspiracies or this Russian propaganda comes out. So you have John Kerry in this. You have Hunter Biden. And next to Hunter Biden, you have his own father. Now, I put out there over the weekend... And I actually specifically asked Tyler Nixon, friend of the show, who is Roger Stone's lawyer, um, since he is a a knower of the law. um, When I looked up what it is and, and what it takes to impeach a president, because my thing was, is after seeing these these emails come out, which, again, no one is talking about. If this was Donald Trump Jr., this would be. The war in Ukraine, we wouldn't even care about it anymore. But the fact that it's Hunter Biden and the fact that we're finding this out because his son is a crackhead, let's just say it for what it is, we're only finding this out because his son was so high, left his laptop at a store and totally forgot about it. And then in an an interview (laughs) was asked, are you missing a laptop? Not that I'm aware of. Do you think it's your laptop? No, I don't think so. I mean, the dude was high as hell dropped off a laptop and went on his merry way and, and never went back to go get it. <laughs> How much do you think he's, re- he's regretting this right now? But the point is also too, you have his baby mama, uh, is they as they call him, his stripper baby, but it was a, a stripper that he had relations with that he doesn't remember. She's actually this week going and testifying against him for tax fraud. He's looking at 12 years in prison just for tax fraud alone. But... You have all of this coming out and nobody says a thing. The Academy Awards are this weekend. Did you guys hear about that? That's what they're talking about. Or anything anti-Russia, but nothing with this laptop. And folks, this is insanely important because again, let me pull up my Twitter here really quick for a second. You have it where Donald Trump asked Zelensky... To look up dirt on Biden, which wasn't okay, but I think he might've been onto something. Maybe the Ukrainian biolabs. I don't know. We don't know what he was asking him for, but he knew something was up. He knew something was rotten in Denmark. Okay. And here you have a president's son who, mind you, was traveling around with his father when he was vice president. All, you, and you can look up the pictures. When you look up Hunter Biden and click on images, there's one of him walking down Air Force One with his father. There's one of him and his father in China. There's ones of him and his father in Ukraine together. And remember, let me t- let, I'll let you know if the big guy can make it this weekend. Talking to Tyler Nixon, he said, oh, my God, that's their lingo. The little guy, the big guy. Hey, the big guy, the big guy he will come and, he'll come and talk to you. Hey, the big guy will come, right? He has... So much dirt on this. How Republicans right now weren't over the weekend drafting articles of impeachment because I looked it up and I was asking a lot of my lawyer friends could he be impeached over things that happened in 2014? And the answer very well is yes, he could. Because at the time that this all went down, he was vice president. You can impeach a vice president as well. Didn't know that. You can impeach a vice president. But the fact that all of this happened in 2014, and that the collusion was set there, and that the con- that the collusion is continuing, how nobody's drafting articles of impeachment when literally every two seconds, when during Trump's administration, it was, "We're going to impeach him." Trump said this, impeach him. He said this, impeach him. He made fun of Nancy Pelosi, impeach him. Oh my God, he did this, impeach him. And nobody, mum's the word on this. So, again, I'm just saying about the story that nobody else was talking about this weekend. Oh, and mind you also, Joe Biden goes over to Poland, over to Brussels. Every single person stops, every world leader stops to talk to the press. Who's the one guy that didn't? Joe Biden. Okay? You then have it where he does this little speech at the end and he takes questions for all of two minutes, walks out and then goes and can't even eat a slice of pizza with the soldiers there, standing in front of them like he's a lost, like he's a grandpa that got lost outside the nursing home and doesn't know where he's at. I mean, this is our world leader, folks. And again, for those of you watching, they're like, oh, she's all pro Trump. No, there were things that I didn't like that Trump did either. But you know what? He was at least with it. Joe Biden, he couldn't even sit there and figure out where the hell he was and then saying that our troops, oh, you're, yeah, you're going to you're going to see when you get to, to Kiev. Excuse me? These goofs and gaffes during a wartime are insanely unacceptable. And the fact that the White House is having to turn around and having to sweep up and clean his diaper because of his goofs and gaffes give me a break. This is like a clown country. You wonder why North Korea is flying, a, a flying off missiles and making Top Gun videos while they do it. <laughs> give me a break. It's almost, it's almost laughable. But again, the fact that no one is talking about this laptop story do, Do we not remember Big Tech censored the New York Post because it was fake news? You have all of these corrupt oligarchs, and I can call them oligarchs. They're not entrepreneurs anymore, folks. Let's call them for what they are, oligarchs. You have Jeff Bezos over trying to dismantle a bridge over in Sweden that's been up there for hundreds of years or whatever it is. And they're gonna, they're gonna clown on the Russian oligarchs in their yacht. Okay, we have a lot more folks with yachts here, okay? So <laughs> please. But you have all of these oligarchs here that are shutting people up, that are censoring people on Twitter. Especially again, the New York Post, one of the oldest legendary papers in the United States, founded by Alexander Hamilton. They find this Hunter Lab stop story and they they censor them? Are you kidding me? So, we got about 10 minutes till our next caller. Let's take a break. 202-521-1320. 202-521-1320. We'll be taking your calls. You can let me know how you feel about it. And we'll be right back after this. You're listening to Fault Lines. 521-1320. See you after the break.
0: Fault Lines.
1: Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines. I'm flying solo today. It's your pierogi princess, Farron Franzak. We are talking about Hunter, Biden, Hunter Biden's laptop and anything else you want to talk about. Let's go first to um, Tarif in New Orleans. Tarif, sorry I missed you the first time around, but Tarif in New Orleans, what's going on, my man? How are you?
2: Thank you for taking my call first. I'd like to say free join and sign to have two comments. Sure. I'm gonna get to I'm gonna get to the Joe Biden thing. First comments is dealing with uh Kanji Brown, the uh, Supreme Court nominee. I was um over the weekend I was trying to figure out why would she give these pedophiles, child rapists, people that had pedophilia less time. And I started thinking about it and also listening to to other analysts. And what came to mind is this if those pedophiles she gave less time to was um, um when it was grilling on on Capitol Hill, if there was intelligence access, access or informants or contract workers, then, a, then that mean some agents probably came to an action to give them less time, or they directed all those pedophiles to her courtroom to make sure that they already knew that she was going to give it, give them less time. I'm just I'm th- throwing out a hypothesis out there, which means courtroom. If she get on the um, Supreme Court, it means she promised that she still have them same ties to the intelligence community. And we don't know if a surveillance law might bill might come up. Well, the intelligence community said, look, can you look the other way on this week, Can you vote no or yes? Which means she's not voting her own conscience. She, and by law, she might be voting for the intelligence community. Because it turned my stomach when I found out she's giving all that less time to pedophiles. Then what it hit me, I'm like, "Wait a minute, suppose it was like government contract workers or hackers or something like that, and she gave all that time she gave them left time doing a federal government a favor, and also she's also part of the you know the intelligence community because now she showed that she she can uh, do whatever the intelligence uh, community want her to do. I'm just throwing out that hypothesis. if anybody would make my theory right, look into those people. She let gave left time to those pedophiles to see if they had um, contact with the federal government.
1: Well, there there was one case that I did hear where it was a father raped his daughter and filmed it, and she gave him less than the minimum sentence, and it was somewhere around three months. And it when you start looking at some of the different cases, there are some major question marks. But yeah, go ahead for your second point.
2: Yeah, I'm, I didn't know that one, but it, um, the um, the th- the second comment com is done with Joe Biden. I brought this up last night. Um, okay, Joe Biden. Anytime a uh, um, uh, president or prime minister basically calls for a regime change in another country and want to remove a, another head of the state, that's dangerous. And what happens when they do that? They lose leverage on a negotiation plane, especially especially worldwide. Once Joe Biden did that, when in two weeks dealing it, he said it kind of, you know, saying, you know, Putin a thug and um, the regime change in Russia, he lost uh, leverage dealing with negotiations. That means he, he can't really sit down and talk with Putin now. You're going to have to deal with, they're going to have to deal with some, Putin and them going to have to deal with somebody else. So the United States lost leverage. So they have, what they have to depend on. Um, or the CIA head man Burns, or, or, or Blanklin, or Sullivan now. and So no matter what Joe Biden goes, I mean, people going to be thinking in the head, no matter what lead on the planet, they're going to say, well, this man called for uh, a removal of a sitting president, a sitting prime minister. Nope. I mean, that's that's scary. So he lost leverage on that. It made the United States look very bad. And also, i like to add, to um, uh, to go along, well, with that is that um, another comment? The Solomon Islands is working with China now. Yes. They're mm-hmm. talking about moving, uh, moving there, maybe making navy bases or, or ports or whatever. And They had an uncle came out from Australia saying that Australia should invade the Solomon Islands to stop that. That's hypocritical. They they they, 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 they um they mad with Russia for invading uh, for going into Ukraine. But how could the uh, why uh, is all right for Australia to write an article to go into uh, Solomon Islands? You know that's not right. And you know I also like to say, free you on the again. Thank you for taking my call. But like like I was saying about the Kajana Brown thing, yeah, people need to look into that. Who's these people? These pedophiles that they given off, off free time. I mean, basically ain't getting no sentences, and I mean are they work government contractors too. I mean, are they working with the government? And also that guy that uh gave uh Hunter Biden laptop to the feds, he's been harassed still to the day he almost broke.
1: Yeah, exactly. Tarifa New Orleans, can't thank you enough for calling in. Let's head over to Daniel in San Antonio. Daniel, you wanna talk Hunter Biden, baby, what's going on? <laughs>
4: Yeah, I want to talk about one of the YouTube channels I follow, which is China Uncensored. Um, they have another channel called American Uncensored, which is completely laughable. But what made me perk and listen to this one episode was about the Hunter Biden laptop. And at the end, they made a good point that the because of the lying of the Hunter Biden laptop that was Russia disinformation, that uh people don't believe in the media anymore, and his complaint was that they're turning to right wing media people are liberal or at least you know lean left and if they're noticing it, these russian denying um the the- the people who believe that if these people who believe that uh Russia made Trump president are pointing this out then that should tell us something about the the how the irregular American and how people who are in those uh hold those positions are taking note about the current state of western media personally um i this weekend I was following r t They still happen to have a presence on Facebook. And it was a relief to watch story after story about, hey, wait a minute, here are the true numbers. Only like a thousand people have died on the Russian side during this conflict. And when you look at the numbers, they did a report from Chernobyl and the talk about there's forest fires in Chernobyl. (laughs) Like, well, and when people question me, some of my friends are questioning me like, well, well, why are you believing that lie? I'm like, well, why should I believe our Western media when they lie all the time?
1: Exactly. And you know what's so funny is, well, first of all, thanks for watching RT as a former news anchor on RT America. It's glad to see that people are still able to see it, um, especially the RT International who they work so hard over there. Um, but yeah, and the thing is, is that even, even, even now today, if you say, hey, I don't really want war, I'm anti-war, Putin puppet, even if you're anti-war, my my friend and colleague, Lee Camp, who has always been anti-war, has been anti-war since he came out of his mother's womb. And now he's being called, you know, oh, see, see, you're all for Putin. And it's like, what? You know, so it's just, it's one of these things where the dichotomy with it all is just so hypocritical. And let me tell you, Western prop- propaganda is working for some here. Others, I think, have woken up to it. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But Daniel in San Antonio, I can't thank you enough. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks for tuning in. Everybody, we've got 450 on the Rumble chat. We are going to make it to 500 today. I'm going to prove tomorrow wrong and I'm going to say that we can get there. Rumble.com slash fault lines. Say hello in the chat if it's your, like, I, oh yes, I love that. Hashtag pierogies for peace. I'm actually working out uh, working on a pierogi princess sweatshirt ladies. So I want to give it... And I have another shirt that I'm working on, Vladdy Daddy. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> rumble.com slash fault lines. Go ahead and give it a follow. Hit that rumble button. Share it. We're going to get to 500 today. We're up next. Uh, we're talking with Camila Escalante. We're going to talk everything with Venezuela and how they're getting on the action and how they're using the United States. They're about to make a lot of money with oil, folks. Again, rumble.com slash fault lines. We'll be right back talking with Camila. We'll see you in two
0: lines fault lines
1: and welcome back to fault lines i am flying solo today it is your pierogi princess your journalist extraordinaire Farron Franzak coming at you. We're going to be taking calls at the top of the hour, 202-521-1320. But for right now, we are going to talk to our friend of the show, Camila Escalante. She is a journalist and a correspondent and communist reporting in Latin America. Camila, good morning. Thanks so much for waking up with us. How are you doing? How was your
9: weekend? I'm doing well. We're preparing for a big celebration here in Bolivia tomorrow as the movement towards socialism will be celebrating a big anniversary. Which anniversary? Uh, my anniversary is it? I don't know, it's 20-something.
1: <laughs> I forgot. Sounds good, but it sounds like it's going to be a big party, so that's great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Venezuela, because you have, over the weekend, you know, you have your headlines of Venezuela pledges powerful military cooperation with Russia in a chilling new alliance. Last I checked, um, Venezuela, as as you know, even weeks ago, was saying, hey— the United States with, you know, you, Ukraine with with the United States right behind it was poking the bear with Russia and was standing with Russia. Um, you also have it where they're going to be giving oil to the United States, but it sounds like probably double or triple the price. And they're going to be making a ton of money from their, quote, enemy. Um, kind of your reaction to all of this and what you're hearing on, on the ground, especially you being kind of in the region.
9: Well, uh, you know, we don't really have any we, we, don't, we don't know what's going to happen yet, but you know this will be big regardless. We know that starting um, in 2017, the Treasury Department uh, levied these financial sanctions against the state company, Petaveza, And you know, this was accompanied by all of the sanctions against the banking sector, And what it means is that there's just absolutely no way for you know foreign companies states or any entities to do any sort of business with Venezuela and it's been extremely devastating but we're hearing now from the oil minister that you know following these years of sanctions and all of these uh, um these plants and um the different uh, oil sector being completely you know uh, has has been producing producing at very low levels um OPEC and Petoveza itself have been registering Um, you know, higher and higher production of barrels per day. And they're doing critical repairs, thanks to largely Iran, um, for, you know, sending different spare parts to be able to maintain their oil infrastructure. So things are looking up. And, you know, the United States has shown up at the front door, like you said. Uh, But, you know, Venezuela needs sanctions lifted, but it doesn't necessarily need to sell to the U.S., it needs the sanctions lifted, but it can sell to other countries, other countries in dire need of that same uh, fuel. So, you know, Venezuela was never isolated to begin with. With it has always had friends and allies and partnerships, both with leftist governments and some reactionary governments, and they're looking for oil as well. So, you know, these fifty countries, along with the United States, who you know supposedly. Uh, you know, what is it? They, they they say they recognize Juan Guaido. They were never the international community. And they're the same countries who continuously refuse to condemn Nazism and practices that committed to racism on record on vote at the UN General Assembly. Venezuela is taking note of the way in which the world is taking, you know, form right now and things are changing. And so, you know, they really, like I said last time, they feel the ball is at their is in their court and, you know, they're taking things in stride.
1: I want to talk about the regime change in Venezuela because you even mentioned, you know, Maduro and Juan Guaido, which was um, which the United States is still like, you know, they're not calling Juan Guaido for oil. They're calling Maduro. Um, but, you know, the regime change in Venezuela was at the forefront of Trump's South America policy. You even remember at the State of the Union, Trump actually had Juan Guaido there and they gave him this huge standing ovation. Why do you think it's not a priority for Biden now?
9: Well the far right US backed opposition which you know Trump was backing and then Biden now supposedly still is has absolutely no political power now Guaido who was a total unknown in Venezuela prior to his self declaration was a national assembly lawmaker elected in a term that began in 2016 following the 2015 elections um, but that term expired in January of 2021. There were elections in December of 2020. There's a new National Assembly. That new National Assembly has a new uh, National Assembly leader, which is Jorge Rodriguez, a very important Chavista figure. Uh, but there's also representation of various uh, right wing opposition groups, not the far right opposition. But what this means is that these people who have been uh, supposedly governing. Uh, led by Juan Guaido, you know, some of them live in Madrid, others in Bogota, others in Miami and Washington, no longer have any political, they're not the opposition anymore. They're not even politicians anymore. Most of them don't live in Venezuela. The ones who do haven't run for any sort of elected office to be able to win or lose. There hasn't been any referendum on their mandates. And so, you know, they're completely irrelevant. There's no way in which Washington can continue to say, that they're, um, you know, that they're, they're, they're propping up this sort of opposition because it really is just like, you know, random far-right actors that they're aligning with. So, of course, they have to, the United States has to either, you know, think of a new opposition person, they have to get a new person in there, or they have to, you know, change their strategy and actually begin to deal with a government that's being recognized all over the world, which 150 countries recognize the whole time anyways. And, you know, it, it's funny that you mentioned that
1: because... With with Venezuela becoming the likely supplier of oil to the West, do you think this is going to give Maduro and his government the victory against the self proclaimed President Juan Guaido? Do you think this is going to finally solidify? Like, nope, you got to recognize the one that we voted for.
9: Yeah, they're they're laughing. They've been laughing, um, you know, all along. Not only are they um, seeing to the recovery of the Venezuelan oil sector with the help of Iran and other allies, but they're also, um, you know, moving towards adopting Russian and Chinese payment systems. And, um, you know, Russia had already been sanctioned and was preparing for sanctions. And it's now the U.S. that was not prepared for the the blowback. And so, you know, additionally, Venezuela is seeing um, an end to the hyperinflation That was a big part of what was dominating the news headlines for several years. um, And that began to turn around at the end of last year. And the media, the mainstream media, is absolutely nowhere to cover this. I mean, they were talking about how expensive it was to buy basic hygiene products and the absence of these products um, and the people were living without. And, you know, they were painting a really dire situation. In some cases, some of these things were true. Uh, But nobody's here talking about the the way in which now Venezuela is dealing with the same inflation as other countries. No longer is facing the situation of hyperinflation. So, I mean, Venezuela has a very favorable outlook right now. Now, as we talk about, you know, you're saying that they
1: have a favorable outlook. Good to know as far as for the United States, obviously getting oil. But do you think that this deal, because one of the things that not a lot of uh, Americans know about is, is Alex Saab. Um, And, you know, the businessman who had a lot of close ties with um, Venezuela and its leaders. Do you think this potential deal could play a role in getting him, who is a political prisoner right now in the United States, getting him released?
9: It has to be, you know, one of their major, if not their first, uh, most important bargaining chips in these chip in these talks. Uh, with the United States.
1: And for for those that don't know about him too, can you kind of explain a little bit about him too? Sorry to interrupt, but just kind of give us a lay of the land on that too.
9: Yeah, Alex Saab is a Venezuelan uh, diplomat. He is of Colombian and Venezuelan citizenship of uh, Middle Eastern descent. And um, he was very uh, key to Venezuela's, uh, you know, operations in mitigating the unilateral coercive measures uh, that are waged against against the country. Obviously, um, since uh, definitely since 2017, 2018, it's been extremely hard to import food, medicine, and vital supplies. And so Venezuela has been going to um, its close allies, including Iran. And um, you know, during one of these uh, during one of these trips, uh, Ambassador. Alex Saab, who was an accredited diplomat, was um, arrested in um, Cape Verde and he was uh, taken, they, they say kidnapped, of course, to the United States. And he's experienced torture. The media has, the, you know, mainstream U.S. media has tried to tell us uh, that he was working with the DEA and that he was turning against the Venezuelan government. And of course, the Venezuelan government debunked that right away, saying, we know a lot of people who have worked with the DEA and the CIA and the U.S. government, and none of them were ever tortured. The fact that this guy has been through hell and back means that they're trying to extract all sorts of information from him. But he's a very important, uh, you know, loyal uh, uh, diplomat to the revolution. And of course, they want him back. And last year, uh, he was appointed by the Bolivarian government of Venezuela as part of the delegation sent to Mexico for the negotiations uh, between the Venezuelan government and that far right U.S.-backed opposition. That was; those were talks that were being uh, hosted by Mexico, facilitated, facilitated with, you know, help of uh, Norway in the mediation, and you know, those were called off. Uh, But, you know, they said this is another uh, level of offense because not only is he an accredited diplomat, and this is, you know, a violation of, uh, well, international law, but also he was also part of that team. And so those talks had been suspended. Um, It's important to say about those talks that... uh, the Venezuelan government has said that they plan to go back to Mexico and they plan to negotiate with the opposition, but not with Juan Guaido because they have, uh, you know, it's come to light recently. More evidence of his links to uh, narco cartel leaders um, in, uh, of, uh, you know, Columbia, the Colombia and Venezuelan border area. All this kind of goes back to that cuckoo stuff um, when he was with some other narcos. Photo uh, photographed. And so now they're saying they're going to go back and talk to the opposition. They won't talk to this guy that hangs out with the drug dealers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> now let's let's kind of pivot really quick. Um, you know, we, we touched on the emergence of leftist governments in Latin America. Do you think we could see a unified Latin American political bloc that kind of mimics
9: the European Union? Yeah. I mean, we are we've already begun seeing that. Um, let's see, we have CELAC, which is the, um, you know, community of Latin American and Caribbean states. And that is the block within Latin America and Caribbean, which has 30 countries. And it does not include uh, the U.S. and Canada, as does the Organization of American States. So, you know, people are really treating this as the future of, you know, economic, um, integration in the region. We also have in, in South America, we have Mercosur, uh, and they're trying to, uh, relaunch Unasur, they being the, the leftist socialist governments here. But I think it's, you know, I think that's something that has been, you know, pumped. We've seen new life pumped into those efforts, uh, particularly with CELAC, you know, since, uh, since Mexico and Argentina voted in these sort of center-left governments. That's been extremely important, but in, obviously, in addition to that, we've seen the governments of Peru and um, Honduras, you know, sort of uh, reject the the right-wing projects of the region and, you know, gear t- more towards uh, regional integration. So this will be extremely important, and that, of course, includes caribbean states as well venezuela had a refugee crisis here or i'm sorry venezuela or excuse me venezuela
1: had a refugee crisis that the world here especially here pretty much ignored in fact let's be real here for a second camila the u.s push for regime change in venezuela actually led to a refugee crisis that the u.s had zero interest in solving which is kind of what we do in a lot of places Do you think we're going to see Venezuelan refugees return home from what we saw?
9: Yeah, Venezuelan migrants have been returning home for several years now. I guess since about 2019, we've seen in 2019, we saw the start of the return to the homeland plan, which is an initiative by the um, president, uh, Nicolas Maduro, um, in which he has been sending uh, conviaza flights, the state airline, to the countries with the greatest number of uh, Venezuelan migrants. So, largely, the flights have been going to Peru, to Lima, uh, to uh, Quito, Ecuador. Um, uh, some of the some of the places in Brazil that have a lot of uh, Venezuelan migrants migrants. And they've brought home through that um, through that program, uh, you know, just well over 10,000 people, um, the, the, the majority of which have come back through, uh, I think, those Conviaza flights, but they've also sent some uh, buses to some of the, the closer um, cities in, um, let's say, Brazil for people to return back by land. And there's a long list at all of the major embassies um, in this region of people trying to get back. Uh, they can't necessarily afford their way back, or maybe they can, but they've heard that this that this initiative exists, and so they want to get a flight back. And so we saw that happening before COVID began. Then, when COVID began, we saw a lot of heightened uh, incidences of uh, violence. And xenophobia, and attacks on Venezuelan migrants in a lot of these countries. And so we saw even more people, especially because of the lockdowns and all of the different policies that we're seeing being implemented in all these countries of the region, a lot of Venezuelans said, that's it. Now there's no jobs. They're shutting down the economy because of COVID. We want to go back. And of course, you know, things are normalizing with regards to COVID, but people are continuing to go back. And when I was in Venezuela, um, in November, it just sounded like everyone I know who has cousins, friends, uh, whoever, former colleagues, uh, said that they were that they're going back. Of course, a lot of these people um, we consider them. A lot of people, you know, within the government or Venezuela, considers them to be uh, economic migrants. It's not quite the same as people who leave, for example, uh, Honduras uh, that had just absolutely you know, high rates of homicide and gang violence. A lot of people in Venezuela were forced to leave because they were, or they felt they were forced to leave because they needed to look for opportunity, better economic uh, situation for their families. Sometimes just the the dad would leave to look for, uh, to look for work um, and to be able to send money home. But they're all going back now. Now Venezuela is, um, for better or for worse, people are using the U.S. dollar within the country. And so, you know, a lot of people are earning in U.S. dollars a lot of the you know jobs they would have had before are higher earning. There's also people who continue to you know live in Venezuela and work for foreign companies in which they earn dollars and euros. And so there's a whole lot of new opportunity there. And if people are going to choose between being a taxi driver in Venezuela or being a taxi driver in Lima, Peru, where they get treated like shit, they make a fraction of the wage of Peruvian workers and they face xenophobia, they're prepared to go home and they are.
1: I want to shift to nearby Bolivia where you're at. Um, which saw a right-wing coup. What is the status of the new government there, Camila, under President Arce? Could we see a longtime President Abel Morales return, do you think?
9: That's what people want. I mean, (laughs) to be frank, it's a very like, um, you know, controversial thing because uh, the the media attacks by the right-wing media throughout all of South America and and definitely In Bolivia, I mean, there's many countries that have been governed by leftists. And of course, the media continues to be controlled by the oligarchy in all of these countries. It takes a lot to run a big media network and these channels. And so these networks have been, you know, since the beginning of the movement towards socialism power, when Evo Morales uh, took office um, in the early 2000s, you know, the attacks on him have been, uh, absolutely relentless, and so you know they continue to you know propagate these ideas that you know that he that he never intended to leave power, that he would do absolutely anything to stay in office, um, including you know the the cl- the claims propagated by the OAS and the right wing that that they that the MAS would have rigged the election when you know obviously Evo Morales should today continue to be uh, the constitutional president. Of Bolivia because he did in fact uh, win in the first round of that election that took place in November of 2019. So you know he tapped one of his uh, close ministers. Obviously, this was a uh, decision that included the the main you know tier leadership of of the movement towards socialism. Evo had a lot of say in it, and they chose uh, uh, they chose. Luis Arce, his former economic minister, to run as president. Of course, he won with 55% of the vote in the first round, you know, in a race with five candidates. Um, You know, he's doing an excellent job. He's revitalizing the productive sectors, he's bringing back, you know, uh, these plants that were shut down during the coup, these manufacturing plants, uh, revitalizing state companies. Um, activating all these different economic sectors that were abandoned under Janine Añez. But I think that, you know, people are missing, you know, there's some desire to have this kind of like strong, um, you know, ideological figure, social movement figure at the forefront. And so it's difficult to say whether he would want to um, you know, go that route and try to run again. But there's a lot of people who who are sort of demanding that because the government right now is under so many attacks. You know, they're trying to they're manufacturing the same sorts of attacks against uh, President Luis Arce and his his government as Evo experienced, and it requires um, a response. And so, you know, people know that it's just a matter of time, perhaps a matter of months before the coup attempts and the, the stabilization begins once again here in the country. And it's something that, you know, we feel all the time with all of the campaigns um, from these different right-wing sectors and these far-right leaders um, who are, of course, allied with the United States and have in the past received a lot of funding from the NED um, and other U.S. agencies. So um, we... we We don't know yet, but, um, you know, we do know that that this kind of uh, destabilization is is on its way.
1: Now, you you mentioned Janine Añez. Um, For our audience, could you kind of explain what happened during the coup and how we saw the rise of her for for those that don't know? She's a very interesting figure.
9: (laughs) Yeah, just like in the case of Juan Guaido, in which in 2019, in January of 2019, when he became the head of the National Assembly and then went forward and uh, declared himself as president in the middle of the street. And nobody in Venezuela knew who he was, much less anyone on the exterior. Here in Bolivia, nobody knew who uh, Janine Añez was. She was from a small political party. Um, She was a senator. And she was the vice president of the Senate. Um, And so, you know, when the coup was taking place, um, there were in the process some meetings that we continue to, you know, find new information on. And these were meetings that were hosted by um, the Catholic Church with the presence or involvement um, and sometimes attendance of the embassies of the U.S., uh, the UK and Brazil. And then the the far right figures that continue to, uh, you know, try to attempt coups now. And, uh, you know, they all tried to be part of her administration. But what happened was that they, you know, they all met and they somehow decided that Jeanine Añez would be uh, the the president that they would swear in. Uh, you know, what they did was they took over the Senate and after um, Evo Morales had to leave the country following, you know, the military coup, um, what should have happened, the line of succession, you know, after the vice president, everything should have been the president of the Senate. And so they basically had to shut out the mass movement towards socialism party from the Senate. And they went in, you know, into the chamber without quorum. And she just swore herself in. Um, she had to swear herself in as president of the Senate first, illegally, and then she went and swore herself in as president of the country. Um, This is what, you know, she's being tried in multiple cases. And one of them is this procedure, this, you know, the, the ways in which she violated the Constitution with the help of police and military and everybody else, where she swore herself in on a giant Bible. And, you know, all of this was completely unconstitutional. So apart from all of the massacres and persecution, repression of citizens and violence and everything else that took place and all of the uh, crime and corruption that took place during the one year she was in power. She's being tried in one case specifically for the way in which she took power illegally.
1: Camila, real quick, I am so happy right now because you are you're not you didn't win the prices, right? But we reached 500 in our chat. We reached 500 in the chat. I'm going to say it was probably because of your beautiful face at the bottom of our screen, too. Um, but Camila, last last question, <laughs> last question. What do you see happening as far as with South America, especially, you know, in relation to Venezuela, Bolivia, even Colombia? We had people in the chat and um, asking specifically, what do you see happening with the Colombian um, elections coming up? What, how, how, what do you see with that? A question from the chat.
9: Okay, well, I mean, it's another uh, case in which, you know, there's just been outright rejection of this uh, far right extremist government of Ivan Duque, which has been waging a war and aggression against Venezuela from its territory, partnering with the United States. And that, you know, has uh, is very much firmly, you know, uh, linked to the the paramilitaries there and a lot of the uh, transnational criminal organizations that exist and operate there in Colombia that um have continued to uh to to I guess you know go after the campesinos there and you know the violence has continued we've seen a complete failure of the peace accords so people are looking for something different the coalition the pacto de unidad is a or um the yeah the this you, this pact uh they're calling it is uh a group of leftists and center left parties that are all coming together under, you know, one umbrella, and they're going to elect Gustavo Petro ultimately. So he's a center leftist. He's had some bad things to say about Venezuela. Camila, we're going to leave it there because we're coming up to a hard break. Camila, I cannot thank you enough.
1: You're my 500 queen, Camila. Camila Escalante, go give her a follow on Twitter. She's a journalist covering Bolivia as well as communist reporting. Camila Escalante, thank you so much. Fault lines, we hit it, baby, 500. We're back in two minutes. Do not go anywhere. Rumble.com slash fault lines.
0: Fault lines. Fault lines.
1: Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, looking down at all 500 of you in the chat. Flying solo today in the ladies' corner. My trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I am your pierogi princess, your journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak, which means you and the 500 of the rest of you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Can we just... Woo! We did it, baby! We did it, 500. We did it. Folks, I can't thank you enough. I cannot thank you enough. It's been so much fun coming on the show. It's been an honor to join the show, and it's been an honor to be on the show every single day. And again, I can't thank you enough. The show is growing, and we're going to start getting more and more and more and more, and sky's the limit, baby. But you know who should have some limits? Um, Our president of the United States. (laughs) So let's get into some headlines here for your Monday March 28th, first up in our national news, President Joe Biden said that Russia's leader, President Vladimir Putin, quote, cannot remain in power in Poland Saturday. Remarks a White House official said later were meant to prepare the world's democracies for extended conflict over Ukraine, not back regime change in Russia. Biden's comments on Saturday, including a statement earlier in the day, calling Putin, quote, a butcher, were sharp escalations of the U.S.'s approach to Moscow over its invasion of Ukraine. The speech came after three days of meetings in Europe with the G7, European Council, and NATO allies. President Biden's job approval rating, wah, 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 it's plummeted even more to the lowest of his White House tenure, and seven in 10 Americans lack confidence in the commander-in-chief's ability to handle the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a survey released Sunday found. The number of Americans who approve of Biden's actions since he took the helm of the country in January 2021 has fallen to 40%, the lowest of his presidency, and a dramatic 13 percentage point drop from April 2021, the NBC News poll shows. The poll was conducted between March 18th and 22nd before Biden left for his trip to Europe. Close to half of Americans say they are very concerned that Russia would directly target the U.S. with nuclear weapons and an additional three in 10 are somewhat concerned, according to the new poll from the Associated Press. The poll was conducted before North Korea test-fired its biggest intercontinental ballistic missile Friday, but also shows 51% of Americans saying they are very concerned about the threat to the U.S. posed by North Korea's nuclear program. In your international news, Ukraine could declare neutrality and offer security guarantees to Russia to secure peace without delay, President Volodymyr Zelensky said ahead of another planned round of talks though he said only a face-to-face meeting with Russia's leader could end the war. In an interview with independent Russian media outlet, Zelensky stressed that Ukraine's priority is ensuring its sovereignty and its territorial integrity, preventing Russia from carving up the country, something Ukraine and the West say could now be Moscow's goal. Armenia said Monday it expected Russia to take action to make Azerbaijan withdraw troops from an area of Nagorno-Karabakh, Karabakh, policed by Russian peacekeepers where tensions are rising in a better territorial row. Azeri troops in 2020 drove ethnic Armenian forces out of the swaths of territory they had controlled since the 90s in and around Nagorno-Karabakh before Russia brokered a ceasefire and deployed peacekeepers. Azerbaijan said Sunday that it had not withdrawn its forces and said the area was its sovereign territory. Your holidays today are Respect Your Cat Day, which should be every day, Surf's Emancipation Day, and Weed Appreciation Day, not the weed that you're thinking of. Those are your headlines for March 28th, 2022. Our thanks again to Camila, who is not only gorgeous and a beautiful person, but an amazing journalist. She got us to 500, baby, 500. So we talked about last hour, we talked about Hunter Biden's laptop um, and all of the ties that he has there. So far, no one drawing articles of impeachment. So we'll see kind of what happens with that. But again, right now we have 465 in the chat watching now again, rumble.com slash fault lines. We had 500 there for a hot five minutes, but I believe, I believe that we can get there again um, for those Book of Mormon fans out there. I'm a big Broadway watcher. Um, but yeah, so we're going to be talking to Ted Rawl coming up after the break. We're going to be talking about all of the crime happening in New York. We had Mayor Er Eric Adams who came in, who a former police officer, um, wanted to kind of change the way things are going and, and kind of changing things up a little bit. Um, and we're going to be talking to him about kind of what's going on out there all in New York. Um, but again, for those that kind of missed my middle, my little monologue on, on Hunter Biden's laptop, um, the TLDR on that was basically Rosemont Seneca, Meta Biota, the lab, and the Department of Defense all involved in these Ukrainian biolabs. And why this is not front and center on the media is beyond me. You then have Russia requiring rubles in order to buy their oil. Should be front and center everywhere. Mum's the word here. You see the torture that's going on with Russian soldiers by Ukrainian soldiers. Not saying that it's not happening on the other side. We don't know, but we do have video showing Russian soldiers getting shot in the knee, shot in the groin, then with their heads putting Ziploc bags over their head and kicking them in the head. Those are war crimes. Last I checked, those are definitely war crimes. You have Mariupol, who was very much Azov-owned at that point. And it kind of has kind of been like the Azov headquarters. And you have them shoving people in basements and using them basically as human shields. Mum's the word. Mum's the word what's also interesting is you're seeing in the mainstream media you're seeing where for example if you were to like look up it'll be you know man who survived in the the concentration camps at nazi germany three times over killed in this in this war or mother of three trying to, to to leave with her kids shot dead you're seeing the stories of all of these individuals put out there over and over and over again and that's something that the west eats up as far as their news. Again, you're looking at somebody who used to be all about the West news because I was in it. I was in local news and many people don't understand that how much it trickles down. But you're seeing how everything is these individual stories, which yes, they're terrible. They're awful. However, they're looking at at this micro level to keep you so ingrained and to keep you so angry and to keep it to where you're going to start questioning yourself a little bit like, wait, is this, isn't it really this bad? You know, because I look at all of them. I look at the East and the West. That's my job. I'm supposed to cover all of them. But you even had over the weekend, John Stewart, of all people. If you haven't seen his show, he's got a great new show on Apple Plus or Apple TV Plus, um, which shout out, Apple TV has been putting a lot of great stuff out there. Coda won the Best Picture last night, movie um, highlighting the deaf community. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I've heard that it's great. Um, but yeah, so Apple TV Plus has been putting out some good stuff. And... Jon Stewart talked about the mainstream media and talked about how you have one side that says, you know, how they're right and how they're so truthful. And then you have the other side who just says that they're right, <laughs> you know, which is kind of the truth. But um, he talks he talks a lot about what we're seeing in today's media landscape. And again, Jon Stewart, for those that don't know, if you're listening to Overseas, which by the way, in the chat, please let us know where are you watching from? I always love seeing where you guys are at. Um it's always fun to see where everybody's tuning in from. So go ahead and start writing in where you're where you're tuning in from in the chat. But you know, he's a guy he's a comedian, former host of the Daily show, where his job was to make fun of the news and make fun of the news and the way they cover the news. And so he's talking about the mainstream media and how it all kind of started and where we're at today. And by the end of it all, you see where it's pretty much everybody's like, yeah, screw the media, you know, and I was like, oh my God, if Apple TV could just like let its subscriptions like slide for a week for free so that everybody could see this, but you can see parts of it um, on, on YouTube uh, and I'm sure even on Rumble as well because everybody's going to Rumble, even people beyond the far right, Haley Fuchs from Politico. Um which, which, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll talk about that too a little bit. I don't know. It kind of has to deal with Dan Abrams, and I promised I wouldn't give him any more whim or wind. Um, but, you know, for him to start calling out the media and what's going on, and he says it perfectly. He says, he breaks it down, and he says, in the very, very beginning of this war, Right. The very beginning of this war, everything was, you brought in these experts and they were like, okay, what's happening on the ground? What's going on? What are we looking at? Casualties, artillery, you know, troop movement, number of tanks, what's going on? Total bare bones, no opinions, nothing. Then he says, you see a shift where it's, well, what do we do in order for Ukraine to win the war? What do we need to do or in order for Putin to get him out of power? It all starts to turn and shift shape into this opinion side of the war in Ukraine. And he says, notice, though, notice. Everything is, you know, that how does NATO feel? How does the US feel? Look at how what of a god Zelensky is. Oh my God, did you hear that Tom Cruise is gonna play him in the new movie? Like everything is all obviously pro-Ukraine, because that's what the West is sides, that's what side they're on. However, as Jon Stewart notably points out, no one is talking about peace. No one's talking about how to get to peace. What do we need to do? And what needs to be who needs to sit down at the table and who needs to talk about what do we need to get to, 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 to get to peace here so that no money, no more people die. That's not talked about at all. Nowhere on the mainstream media. It's only about oh, they, they sat down and Putin said this, so then Zelensky had to walk out. That's all that's the narrative that you see over and over and over again. Which is why even you had over the, on Friday night, Tulsi Gabbard on Sean Hannity's show, which mind you, I used to somewhat handle Sean Hannity. He now interrupts people more than anybody that I know. And it's so annoying. Side note, but Tulsi Gabbard's on there. And he's like, oh, so, you, so you're for, for not sending Ukraine our, our military gear. And she's like, no, I'm saying that we need to stop telling Ukraine they're going to win this war because they don't have a flipping chance. And, you know, the night before, she's telling Jesse Waters, we cannot act like God in this. We can't just go to every single country and tell them what to do anymore. Times have changed. People have changed. Leaders have changed. Diplomacy has changed. Which is why when you have Joe Biden, in one weekend, Joe Biden called Putin, again, a war criminal, a butcher and said that we needed to, he needed to be out of the regime. So if we are all about diplomacy here in the United States, because that's all we preach, diplomacy, diplomacy. How in the hell do you walk back from that? And that's where I, I tweeted out. I said, somebody needs to tell his handlers they, they need to shut him up. Because there is the, 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 the way that we are now is we th- we're, we're almost handling ourselves back like in the Cold War era, where we think we can bully people, or even back in the 90s. And like what you hear most from everybody, this isn't Iraq. You can't go into some, another, and I don't, when I say tiny, I mean like tiny as far as puffing their chest out. You, know, you can't go into Iraq and just take out Saddam and expect, you know, th- you're with a world leader. You're with a world leader that's starting to surpass you. You ask people in Russia, "How much are you paying for gas? Have you seen a difference?" Yet, here we're almost going to be at the ten bucks, probably by the end of the month. So again, what the media is telling you, and I and I and I've been there too with you folks. I, I understand this because, you know. They're going to start pressing more and more and more. And like I said, they're going to keep pushing these individual stories of war and all this other stuff. You got to keep at the macro level, folks. We got to stay at the macro level and look at what's going on. Because again, it's working for for a lot of people. But I forget who said it, but it was you you can fool most people some of the time. You can fool some people all of the time. But you can't fool everybody all of the time. And there's a lot of us that aren't getting fooled by this. And they're going to start upping the propaganda even more for many of us who are very anti-war. We don't want to see this invasion. We never called for it. Nobody said, hey, how about we just start a war that goes to World War III? That's not our intention. However, you know, we got to keep at the macro level so that we're not in this fog of war because the West media is going to try to push more and more and more of it and we have to stay above it. So, we are going to stay above it and we're going to be right back in two minutes. We're talking with Ted Rawl about all that's going on in New York. I know, totally shifting back to the United States, but we're going to be talking to Ted Rawl all about what's going on in New York. You're listening to Fault Lines, com slash Fault Lines. We are back in two.
0: Fault Lines.
1: Fault Lines, and welcome back to Fault Lines. I am your Porogi Princess, flying solo this Monday morning for you, journalist extraordinaire Farron Franzek. and I want to bring in friend of the show. Let me find my. Um, I want to find. I want to bring in friend of the show, Ted Rall. Ted Rall is a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Columnist, you can follow Ted Rall on Twitter at at Ted Rawl and read his cartoons and articles at com. Ted, how are we doing this morning? Thanks for coming on.
10: Thanks for having me. It's good to be
3: here.
1: Now you are in New York, correct? I am. So what's been going on out there with with the new mayor? And and you know, kind of give us a lay of the land because we're hearing a lot about him when they're not talking about Ukraine, at least in the mainstream media.
10: Uh well it's like the it's like the Who Song. new new mayor, same as the old mayor, Uh, (laughs) having a mayor, uh, basically where he's in absentia. The only change that I noticed was, uh, this was very telling, about a week ago, I went down to my local subway station and there were two police officers in there and New Yorkers were walking up just gobsmacked that there were cops, actual cops in the actual subway. We just hadn't seen one you know for years ever since they abolished the transit police uh back uh you know under mayor Giuliani and so people we you know we were all talking to them and they were like yeah people are looking at us like we're, like we're the yeti um but that happened for uh, i think about half an hour never to be seen again hasn't uh, probably never will be um, you know, crime is out of control. The city is uh, still far from recovered from uh, from from the pandemic. Uh, I was just listening to local uh, radio and they were talking about how commuter rails uh, traffic is still 50% or less of pre-pandemic, which means there's just... Tons of empty office spaces. People are not coming in to work. Downtown is, uh, you know, Midtown and, and, and the financial district are, are, are half empty. Uh, and a lot of stores are still closed. It's hard to see how they're going to recover. Landlords are still charging rent as if nothing had changed. But uh, I, I don't know. That just seems unsustainable. And it, the streets are sketchy, you know. I mean, it is, it is not. It really feels. And I, I came here in 1981 to go to college. It feels like it did then uh, where, you know, you get you see and random acts of violence and you feel like, you know, you really would not want to be on the subway at night, uh, even during the day. Uh, You know, there's a lot of uh, emotionally disturbed people pretty much on every car of every train. That wasn't the way it was before the pandemic.
1: Oh, yeah. And, you know, one of the things um, that's interesting is even Eric Adams is saying, you know, that New York City has become a laughing stock. When you're talking about um, like the landlords, I, I only know this from my sister who used to live in New York and she actually left during COVID. She was at, um, right in the financial district and she was saying, you know, she was in this nice little studio paying three grand a month and she's like, why am I here? The office is closed. So she went back home with my parents for, you know, the time being. But she was saying, oh my goodness, I looked at my apartment and they they lowered their rent and in just two weeks alone, they've had a number of people die either from drug overdoses or from crime. And she's like, oh my God, I can't even believe. It. I mean, this this is the state of the art, beautiful apartment building. And you're starting to see where, you know, crime is even filtering into places where you wouldn't normally see crime in New York City. But then you have this talk of, you know, and since you were there in 81, then you were there... When Mayor Rudy Giuliani was there, where he really went tough on crime, Um, they're talking about Eric Adams possibly becoming the new Rudy. What do you think and what do you say to those headlines? Well,
10: I don't see it so far. I mean, first of all, it is important to note that Giuliani was mayor between 93 and 01. And that was the period of the biggest economic expansion at that point in U.S. history. And New York City was where Wall Street was, which was booming. And so money was pouring into city coffers. So it's Mm -hmm. hard to clean up New York and repave and fill in the potholes when you've got money pouring in that's not the situation now so mayor adams has a very different situation the the job of the city, of the mayor of the city of new york today is communications to make new Yorkers feel like someone's listening they're paying attention they know what's going on and they're working on it that's where adams is failing he's Uh, You know, he's out, uh, you know, he's he seems to be far more interested in whatever is left of nightlife and, uh, you know, showing off bling than he is in communicating with New Yorkers the way that, you know, Ed Koch, not one of my favorite mayors, but the way he used to hang out outside of subway entrances in the morning and ask, how am I doing? And people might say, you know, in in colorful language, not well, but they were, they were, nevertheless, they knew that Ed Koch was trying to keep his his finger on the pulse. Adams is, is, it's just, it is, it does feel a lot like the outgoing Bill de Blasio, where there's just no one at the helm, and uh, it's dispiriting. It would not be so hard to take steps like Uh, deploying more cops into the subways, I think every single train in the 80s, every single train had one police officer on it uh, or more. That's how it should be now. There's no reason that can't happen in a city with more than 10,000 police officers. Um, and there's, you know, the subways are just viewed as sort of no man's land at this point. Um, there needs to be some rethinking of what to do with em- all these empty storefronts. Uh, maybe force or incur- use tax incentives to encourage pop-up locations. Um, you know, the, it, it's just the there's kind of like a danger right now that middle-class and upper-class New Yorkers will ask themselves like your sister did, why am I paying this rent? There's not that much here going on work-wise and culture-wise anymore. Uh, I could live somewhere else. I can, you know, order great used books on, you know, on the internet. I don't really need to be here.
1: You know, as you know, you said, for example, when Giuliani was mayor, there was this big economic boom. And, you know, a lot of it, I feel like, you know, and you kind of see it across the country too because you're also seeing a big shift. And I know this as well because I used to live in these small little towns covering local news. You're seeing a shift from the big cities to the small towns, mainly because I think a lot of people realize, hey, I can go from a two-bedroom condo for 465000 here in D.C. and get a nice four-bedroom, three-bath And let's say in Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, and you're seeing a lot of these people move to these smaller towns across the country because I feel like also as well as economic goes, as the economy goes down, crime goes up. And so it sounds like the only way to maybe fix it is kind of a double-edged sword. Like you said, with the Wall Street boom, New York saw a boom. Does Wall Street have to boom in order for it to, to, in order for New York to kind of, Get the uh, the heart shocked?
10: Well, ne- Wall Street needs to boom. I mean, you know, it's not exactly sinking down the toilet. The problem is that all the traders and uh, the people who make their money from Wall Street, a lot of them are not in the office at all or they're only in part time right now. So uh you know, they're not if you go if you you know if you walk around the financial district today and you see all these restaurants and and, delic- and delis and local businesses that rely on the lunch crowd and the after work crowd. Um, you know, they're suffering because there's no one, they they just lost most of many of their customers. Um, That's the issue. It's not just the numbers of the Dow Jones Industrial Average that are the metric. It's the number of traders and stockbrokers and runners and all these people who are actually physically here. And they're not physically here. And now, Because of the changes from the pandemic and the ability to work from home, a lot of employers are just not going to bring everyone back. Office space is expensive, and it's easier to hire and fire workers when you don't even have to look in their face when you let them go. So when they're home and they're using their own equipment, you don't even have to pay for that. Uh, You know, I think this is a a seismic, permanent shift.
1: As we kind of go into, um, one of the things that's been interesting to to see in New York is all of this COVID mandates and the masks and all that, you know, in particular they were, I was, it was a big article in the post that I saw where it was a tale of two. um, Oh gosh. I I don't remember what the stadium is there, Um, but it was like a tale of two cities and it was where, you know, workers who wanted to work, I think, is it MetLife stadium? Um, where the workers had to be vaccinated in order to get in, but the crowd didn't have to be. And then you saw at Madison Square Garden where players had to be vaccinated, but the attendees didn't have to be. And it was one of the players that actually wasn't vaccinated. He called it quits for the game that they were going to play there and actually went and go sat in the stands because he was unvaccinated. Do you think a lot of this too is still that New York is still trying to figure out all of its COVID policies and, I, for example, know, like, again, like my own sister, she's like, why the hell would I go back there when they can't even figure out COVID?
10: Well, there is, um, there, you know, definitely there were two lost years, uh, for parents and in the school system, um, there, they feel, you know, we feel like our kids lost a year or two. Um, there's, and there's definitely, I think like right now it feels hopeful, hopeful, But it feels temporarily hopeful, right? I mean, it's like, so the the mask mandate has been lifted. Most businesses do not enforce the mask mandate. But yet you still have to wear it in the subway. But then half the people don't, and it's not really enforced. And it is kind of a hodgepodge. I think the masks just sort of add to the overall sort of psychological vibe of decadence and decay um, and, and, and sort of remind people of what we're sort of just came out of. And, and, you know, maybe there's going to be another variant and we're going to go back into this all again. I think, uh, you know, it's dispiriting. New Yorkers are extremely resilient people. Uh, but you do come to, you do get to a point where you have to ask yourself, is this worth it? And, um, There is a lot to be said for small town life, Uh, you know, and I do think the Internet changes everything. You do not, you know, you used to have to live in a city like New York to pursue certain occupations. That's just not true anymore.
1: So how's cartooning going for you, sir? Because we have been in the age of a lot of censorship lately, and I feel like you've been probably one of those people where they're like, hey, great cartoon, Uh, moving on. (laughs) How's it going?
10: Yeah, well, that's certainly true. You know, it's funny what I get uh, more these days. My biggest challenge is the fact that one of my clients is actually Sputnik's website. And uh, whenever and I get trolls, you know, who are saying like, you know, whenever I say anything about Ukraine, they'll say, you know, this, per- you, know, you know, he works for the Russians, right? The- he works for the Russians. And it's, you know, as if I don't have my own opinions, as if I'm not just saying what I believe anyway,
1: Oh, you didn't get the cell phone to Putin yet?
10: <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I, I operators are standing by. Yeah,
1: I'm still waiting on mine, but yeah, go ahead.
10: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's and, and so you know, and these questions are not asked of, of people who work for any number of other sketchy media outlets, like uh, you know CNN, um, but it's a um yeah and and so it is a little bit you know it's interesting i was kind of trying to i've been trying to navigate that and you know the best way really honestly is just to be like yeah i you know uh, that's right and i like it and it's my choice and you know go to hell um, but it, it is very there 's definitely a McCarthyist vibe in the air um, you know it's a, not it 's not even now i 'm being getting pressure from people all the time like hate mail like you must why are you not condemning what russia is doing why you, you, you have to condemn it it 's like i don 't have to do anything you know part of what makes free speech free speech is that you don 't have to say uh, anything you don 't want to say so it's uh but you know it it it's these are dark times it reminds me a lot of the immediate aftermath um of after 911 when people got really really stupid and uh you know people are getting really really stupid again
1: and anyone who's muslim will tell you that too or any kind of you know afghan or arab or who have you they they felt the wrath after 911 so Russians now are getting it too, but, you know, land of everybody's equal and I'll bring all your tired, your poor, and your hungry, but yeah, that seems to go out the window. Ted Rall. I can't thank you enough, sir, for talking about this. Thanks so, so much for waking up with us this Monday. Ted Raleigh is a political cartoonist and syndicated al- columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter at Ted and read his cartoons and articles at Rawl.com. Again, Ted, thank you so much. When we come back, we're going to be talking to our friend, good friend of the show, Elijah Manier, talking about Biden's, Biden's Poland trip and all the fallout from that and how the rest of Europe is looking at his behavior over there. You're listening to Fault Lines. We are back in two.
0: Fault Lines. Fault Lines.
1: Welcome back to Fault Lines. You're listening with your pierogi princess, Farron Franzak. here. We are joined now by our friend of the show, Elijah Manier. Elijah Manier is a veteran war correspondent with 35 years of experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at E-J-M-A-L-R-A-I. And you can find his reporting on his website, com. Elijah Manier, how you doing this morning, sir?
11: Hello. Thank you very much for having me again. I'm doing fine. How are you? Good, good. No, you
1: don't have to say thanks for having me again, like every time there's an audition. We love having you on.
11: <laughs> I love to be with you.
1: <laughs> we love that you're here too. So let's talk about Biden's trip to Poland. Um, many here in the United States are looking this, looking at this and we're there's like two camps. <laughs> there's the camp where they're trying to say, okay, maybe he's just... You know, he's getting a little old and okay, but, you know, it's okay. Make sure he just gets a little bit more naps this time around. And then you have the other side that's like, wait a minute. He was talking about regime change, and now the White House is backpedaling. He went off script. Why did we go off script? Kind of what is Europe's reaction to his his big move over there? Oh, and let's not forget, he also told our own American troops, yeah, when you get to Kiev and what you're going to see there— And we're like, hang on a second, Uh, when did we sign on for Kiev? So I guess kind of what is Europe's reaction after this debacle of a trip?
11: Unfortunately, Europe uh, has no more anything to say and has delivered itself to the U.S. administration dictate. Uh, We've seen how the Europeans are going against their will, but not only that, against their interests shooting themselves in the foot and being forced to go and back for gas somewhere else than from Russia at a a very expensive price that is much more expensive than the pipeline that arrived from Russia to Europe at a very cheap price. So what Biden said in Poland actually reflects the US administration policy since many decades to uh, advertise and work for regime change in different ways, starting from the actual regime change by sending boots on the ground in countries like Afghanistan, Somalia, Iraq, Syria uh, and other countries. they try to change the regime like in Venezuela, they uh, they were trying it in Iran since a very long time since the uh, government of the uh, democratically elected prime Minister Mossadegh uh, in the 90s. So all that is a deja vu. We know that this is the American style in changing government, changing uh, regime, and recently more sophisticated the color revolution where they speak in the name of freedom and uh, democracy, but then we have uh, Donald Trump sometimes saying the truth and saying we love dictators. We don't care about democracy. So what Biden said really was not something that he shouldn't say. It's something that he has always thought about. And uh, this is what his administration is all about, is changing the regimes and submit regimes that reject the US hegemony. And Europe, unfortunately, since the Second World War, has delivered itself to the U.S. hegemony. And we have seen in the last three, four years, the French and the German trying to pull out a little bit from the U.S. control. But then we see how the Americans, and that is something that pre-prepared because it is not only that Biden coming up, newly with the idea of preventing the Nord Stream 2 gas line that comes from Russia to Germany and the rest of Europe, but we have seen Donald Trump imposing sanctions on companies in Europe if they accept to collaborate and to make sure that the Nord Stream 2 is successful. So Donald Trump, that he doesn't know even where Germany is, has this on his agenda. It shows how the U.S. administration think of submitting Europe, pushing Europe to buy the expensive U.S. gas, and to detach itself from Russia for different reasons. First, because Russia is offering another model that is not a control of country and regime change. Secondly, because the world is a bit fed up of the U.S. invading countries without any accountability leaving and then saying, oh, that was a mistake, or we sometimes commit mistakes, but they leave behind them hundreds of thousands of people who were killed due to these mistakes.
1: Now, you have over the weekend, and I found this very, very interesting, you had Germany and Estonia really bumping up their um, defense budgets over the weekend. Um Germany they were kind of at odds at first with each other but then you had it where nope we're going to pump it up um so much so that other people are like wait a minute like normally the United States is the one that has the big defense budget now you have Germany followed by Estonia what does this tell you as far as you know again both countries of NATO I mean I thought that they were trying to avoid a World War 3 situation um but when you amp up your defense budgets is this a red flag or is this just uh it's just another day another dollar literally
11: it's it's a bit complicated than that because you see the problem in europe here is we have the eastern europe and the western europe you have the americans total control over the the eastern europe and you have the western europe who are more richer and they are supporting The 27 countries of Europe are trying to create a kind of balance. But unfortunately, you have Estonia with 1.3 million inhabitants putting itself at the level of Germany with 85 million and saying, well, we want to increase our budget. So what is the budget of Estonia in comparison to forcing Germany to increase its budget? All that comes from the same source. Donald Trump tried to push Europe to increase the defense budget. And Germany and France said, well, we don't have enemies. While we need to increase the budget, we prefer to spend it on our population. But then now, with this, like George W. Bush war on terror that everybody is with me or against me, Joe Biden came to Europe, walking under the arch of triumph, saying, I am now the leader of Europe. And you do what I say, because you will be in danger. But, I mean, who said that Russia is going to go and attack all the European countries, particularly those who are NATO members? Attacking any NATO member, it falls into Article 5, where all the 30 uh, nations who form NATO would respond. I don't think Russia is going to go through that road. It is not only dangerous, but it is unfeasible. I think Russia needs to renegotiate with the U.S. It's a Germany over Western and Eastern Europe, because this is where America now is concentrated on. And is the rest of the world is watching how the U.S. is losing part of its dominance and is extremely happy for it. And Russia will have to negotiate a new world order to stop the U.S. from invading other countries and say, this is something that only us can do. Well, actually nobody can do. And that should go to the United Nations to decide. And when a country like the United States permits itself to invade so many other countries and try a regime change in different countries since the 50s who do not abide by the U.S. hegemony, then every strong country Will find itself in a position to occupy another country when its own interests are at stake
1: you said Estonia with one point three million and they're going to the same budget as Germany. I can't imagine that the people of Estonia are happy about that i mean even even folks in germany i mean there was there was a lot of pushback when they talked about raising their defense budget. How do you think this is going to go over well go over with the people of these countries? Excuse me, of these countries, not the people in, in, you know, like the the parliaments or, you know, in government, because, you know, a lot of you know, I mean, I just remember when I was in Europe, not, you know, not long ago, not too long ago, but just enough long ago um, where we're known as being kind of a, not a warmongering country, but people know us as we we love a war because we make a lot of money when we're in one.
11: Well, yes, Estonia is a poor country. Poverty is extremely high. Average monthly gross wage in Estonia is around $1,200. And uh, people are extremely unsatisfied with the life conditions, but they have no clue what's happening in the upper echelon and how the international politics is dealt with by the politician. So when people say, oh, the United States is with us, and they're happy because they are supported by the United States. They don't think that this is ten to 11,000 miles away coming to Estonia to just because Estonia is on the borders with Russia and can challenge Russia with the U.S. troops that are stationed there and with 150 nuclear, uh, U.S. Military, nuclear bombs that are spread all over uh, Eastern Europe and Turkey. That is what the Americans are doing with uh, Eastern Europe. And this is why the American interest is to direct its bombs toward Russia when there is no war going on between the U.S. and Russia. It is a fictive war uh, or an enemy that the Americans have woken up since 1990. It was completely hibernated. And in 2015, Russia started to be visible on the market, but not to occupy the world because the experience of the perestroika was enough to convince Russia that now it is time to build up the economy. And building up the economy is very unsuitable for the US to see what's happening between Russia and China because China is the objective. So we can't compare what's happening in Estonia or in Latvia, or in Macedonia, because these are extremely small countries who have really no say on the international politics and arena.
1: Now, you have, um, breaking just 24 minutes ago, President Volodymyr Zelensky saying that um, he's going to deliver a virtual address to Greece's parliament April 7th, as we've kind of been talking about him talking to all these different countries. We've kind of dubbed it the kickstart to World War III tour. Um but Mr. Zelensky has given a series of such speeches, including to lawmakers here in the U.S., even in Canada. But then you also have European Union ministers. They're meeting in Brussels to put in place funding and measures to support Ukrainian refugees arriving in the bloc. Arrangements so far have been ad hoc. But the EU has decided to grant asylum to all Ukrainian refugees for up to three years You have more than 3.8 million people have fled Ukraine since the Russian invasion with 2.2 million arriving in Poland alone. What do you think this is going to do? I mean, I I remember, for example, when Germany took in a bunch of refugees, um, you know, they kind of took a hit with that. How do you think that the rest of Europe is going to take to a lot of what's going on, especially knowing that in the underbelly of all of this, Lies the United States behind it?
11: Well, look, I've covered the war in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and uh, the, the war in the former Yugoslavia, and I can assure you that Europe is extremely good and uh, capable of supporting refugees and delivering food and uh, uh, what all kind of social support, but not capable of looking at the problem in its depth and in its essence. So the Europeans, what they're doing, it, it they're spending billions of dollars on supporting the refugees, but suspending also billions of dollars and euros on sending weapons to Ukraine, but not making any effort to ask the Ukrainian president to stop listening to the American president and to direct itself toward a negotiation with Russia Ukraine is going to be divided in the river Dnieper that is dividing it. It is, according to the UK intelligence services, losing the south. It is losing the east, and Kiev is almost surrounded, and Zelensky is still giving this little um, uh, uh, biscuit to go to talk to this European parliament in Greece. In Italy, in France, he's going around all the parliaments in Europe to deliver a speech. So what's the outcome of this speech? To give the message and to get something in exchange? Well, the European community said, we are not giving you anything that we did not promise. We're not going to take part of this war. We're not going to be involved. We only give you weapons, but they didn't say it. So you can kill more Ukrainians and for more Ukrainians to be killed. This is what the Europeans stand. So he can speak to the parliament of Greece and will get nothing but his face on the television. And then he needs to face the reality and act as a president rather than his previous job as an actor and a comedian and look after his own population by stopping the refugee internally displaced, and refugee outside Ukraine that are going to Europe. This is not going to bring anything to Ukraine, but a divided country, and nobody's going to support this division. Ukraine is really, until today, the Ukrainian leadership is not aware that it is completely on its own. The objective of the U.S. is for this war to last as long as possible, for Russia to be engaged in the country, the U.S. objectives have been already met. And he needs to understand that this war should be stopped by going and negotiating with Russia because he doesn't need to have neither nuclear weapons nor an excessive uh, man of uh, uh, army that reached 463,000 for a country like Ukraine. Or to have NATO inside his country because he has been trained uh, by NATO since 2014, 2015 by President Obama and then followed by President Trump and now by President Biden. He should return to logic and look at the, the truth in real eyes, in the eyes that are compatible with the interests of his own people.
1: Well, that's just the thing is that since day one of this and what was first a military operation, then called an invasion, Putin has been pretty specific on like the three demands. The first one is declare yourself a state of neutrality, like a Switzerland, like an Austria. Then you have um, uh, demilitarize and the denazification. And the third is that you're never going to be part of NATO. And so you have now um, Zelensky saying that, you know, Putin wants to split the country in two. Russia has never said that. But now you're just having an hour ago. Members of the G7 have rejected the demand by President Vladimir Putin to pay for Russian gas and oil in rubles. Uh, This is from Germany's uh, economy minister, Robert uh, Habeck. Excuse me saying, quote, all of the group of seven ministers have fully and unanimously agreed that would be a clear violation of those contracts. Him saying this coming out of Berlin, um, your thoughts on, on this. And now that they're not going to pay in rubles, does this mean they're going to have a really cold winter? Where are they going to get this oil from?
11: It's really uh, interesting what you're saying ends to the point. The G7s are a form of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States. So basically who are suffering the most are only France, Germany, and Italy. Now, there is no alternative for the Russian gas, and the European leaders cannot expect Russia to be merciful when they declare they are sending weapons to Ukraine for the Ukrainian and the Russian to kill each other, They are declaring that they uh, are freezing the uh, Russian assets that are more or less 300 billions in euros, dollars, sterling and gold, and they are looking for alternative to cut down on the Russian gas. So why on earth Russia would say, okay, I'm going to deliver you the gas in the way you want it and you pay in the most suitable currency that suits you? Well, no. Russia is also defending its interests and saying, well, I want the ruble to become an international currency, and I no longer trust your currency. Now, let us look at what the Europeans are doing. If they refuse to pay the gas, President Putin will say, well, you're not going to get a gas that you're not going to pay for. Secondly, the Americans said that we promised to provide you with 50 billion cubic meter of future annual shipment of U.S. liquidified gas is based on the premise that prices should reflect a long-term market, fundamentals and stability of supply and demand. That means the European needs to sign a contract to buy U.S. gas until 2030. That is much more expensive. And that also means that America will not provide the European with what they need in gas, but they will look for the gas in the market. Now, which market? The market is saturated. Qatar said, I'm not, I don't have any excess of gas. Algeria said, and the Italian went to see the Algerian and said, sorry, we have all the contracts uh, already full. And the Americans hope that the Asian market can divert some of their gas Europe, so all that is really an extremely grey area. Now the G7 can refuse. At the end of the day, where on earth Europe is going to provide this gas from? Now the Americans announced, like the G7 today, that Germany will not use the Nord Stream two. Now they talk on behalf of the German and they suspend a never inaugurated gas line and prevent germany to supply prevent russia to supply gas through germany now ukraine is still getting the russian gas until today and the rest of europe now if they don't want this gas and they don't want to pay the gas according to what russia wants in ruble they're not going to get the gas and it is a violation of the contract so who said it is not a violation of the international policy to arm weapons, uh, to arm uh, population with weapons, and to take a decision to expand your um, military uh, personnel and NATO to the limit of Russia when you have agreed verbally with, with Russia that you're not going to do it. Everybody is violating the law. Nobody's respecting any international law. So if they can't jump on their head, they're not going to get the gas.
1: Yeah, and we're going to see, because a lot of this, I feel like it's like that old saying, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. So, Elijah Manier... Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we're definitely going to get you back on again soon, in case you were wondering. Um, Elijah Manier is a veteran war correspondent with 35 years experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at E-J-M-A-L-R-A-I and find his reporting on his website, elijahjm.wordpress.com. Elijah, always great to have you. Um, We're going to take some calls, and I see... We have Original Old Gringo from Rumble calling on this historic day of 500 people in the chat. Original Old Gringo, how you doing this morning, my friend? Hey,
3: I'm doing great. Hello, pierogi princess.
1: <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> great. Uh,
3: it's a balmy 35 degrees here in Kansas City.
1: Oh, wow. So what's on your mind today?
3: You know, one of my bugaboos, I'm just stuck on it like a broken record, is the petrodollar. You know, you've probably seen me comment quite a lot on that. Oh, yeah. It does. It ties into Russia, Ukraine, the lack of oil going into Europe and what the Chinese are doing, what the Iranians are doing. It ties into so many things. And I'm not an expert. I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert. But I have tried to study MMT with groups like Real Progressive. Steve Brembine's been on your show. You know, I'm on a I'm on a uh, chat, you know, once a week basis with him, you know, private chat stuff with him. But uh, Fidel Kaboob with the Global um, Sustainable Prosperity, Fidel Kaboob, uh, he's a um, Tunisian national, but uh, is a university economics professor at the University of Ohio. Anyway, the message I want to get across are kind of a, question statement together is that i've noticed that a lot of people whether i'm at work online or whatever they're really super hyper worried about the fall of the u.s dollar the petrodollar mess and i'm not saying that there's nothing to it i'm not an expert i'm just saying that mmt seems to argue that it's not what you spend the money on or how you spend it or what denomination, what currency you spend. It's what you save in. Now, interestingly, though, and I've never heard MMT talk about this if people are, if countries are saving US dollars to buy the oil, would that then not affect things? Well, I've noticed that MMT people don't, I'm talking about the big ones, you know, the, 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 the scientists. You know, you see people, the Stephanie Keltons and those, you know, they don't seem to be worried. Warren Mosler, they don't seem to be worried about the lack of the petrodollar. Now, I will say this. People will compare us to um, uh, the empire in, in Germany before the Weimar Republic, or they'll compare us to Venezuela. or They'll compare us to um, Zimbabwe. But those countries did not have full control over their own monetary system. Or they had one single crop or one way of making money. The USA is a... I'm critical of the USA, don't get me wrong, but we were a big country with a lot of land and a lot of resources. Thing, And we also have complete control of our... The government does not mean that... The federal government. And people get confused with the state governments.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm not an expert on this, but you know what? I'm going to get somebody on the show to talk about this exact thing um, because I think it's important because you're hearing others. They're saying, well, the dollar is going to fall and be ready, folks. So original old gringo, I'm so glad you called in. I hope you call in more after this. Thank you so much. We've made it through another one. My first show on my own here. Shout out to our engineers, Uncle Andre, and producer Daddy Jack. Also, Lath, who's not in the building, but he's working remote. And of course, my wonderful co-host Jamar, who was off today, but he's going to be back tomorrow. I'm Frere and Franzek. We will see you tomorrow. Stay safe. May the good news be yours.
0: Fault lines.